Hello, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 43 of X-Lapsed, where uh, well, we're going to kick off the number sixes, and we're going to do so with one hell of a book. Now, today we're talking about Marauders number six. Had a cover date on March 2020. The story's called A Time to Reap, so I guess we're, we're still taking lines from that song. Uh, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lali and Mario, De, Mario Del Panino. Colors, Eric Archinaga and Federico Blee. Letters, VCs, Corey Petit. Head of X's, Hickman. Edits, Robinson White, Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. And this one went on sale January 22nd, 2020. Oddly, um, in the credits page, uh, Tom Muller as design does not get credited here. I don't know if uh, that was something they left out or if uh, maybe his deal was only for the first five issues. I don't know. But... We open with a roll call, and uh, the folks featured in this issue will be Pyro, Iceman, Call Me Kate, Lockheed, Bishop, Shinobi Shaw, Storm, and Sebastian Shaw. Then we get a single-page spread of creds. You see, I knew they could do it. I knew they could do it. Now let's just see if they can maybe keep it up. So... We rejoin our comics action on board the Marauder, where douche villains, the hate monger, and the executioner are making their presence known. It looks like by the time we come back here, they've already taken Bobby out. However, the tandem of Pyro and Lockheed, well, I'm assuming Lockheed provided the flame, are doing what they can to keep them at bay. Kitty phases Bobby into the down-below quarters so he can regain his bearings, and she leaves him in the care of Lockheed to look over him. So, uh, I'm gonna guess that he gave Pyro a light first? Eh. Back topside, Kitty phases Pyro out of the hate monger's chokehold and then stabs the baddie in the left shoulder. The executioner responds to this by going to impale Kitty with that weird stick thing that he carries, only she phases, so it phases through her, and actually winds up lodged into Pyro. Now luckily this wasn't a fatal blow or anything, and uh, we're about to discover that it was never actually intended to be in the first place. You see, what the executioner was actually doing here was injecting a teeny tiny little ominous Verende member, uh, this is Yellow Jacket, into Pyro's bloodstream. This is sort of some, uh, kind of, you know, fantastic voyage sort of stuff, and sadly not the Coolio kind. Now, this Yellow Jacket is uh, a fellow by the name of Darren Cross, who I think mostly screwed with Scott Lang. Anyway, we shift back to Madripoor, where we see the little Hellfires discussing how their plan is going. They're happy that their man is inside the Firestarter, which I'm going to assume they're making a Prodigy reference, since we all know Pyro can't actually make flames. Anyway, they're really pleased, since they're sure he'll uncover all sorts of information that many interested parties will be willing to fork over massive amounts of cash for. Which, you know, gotta say, ain't the worst plan. As they look on, 
Bishop and Storm free the upstart with plans of rendezvousing with the Marauder so that they can use its gateway to get the refugees they rescued back to Krakoa safely and speedily. Now, speaking of the Marauder, let's head on back. Now, Kitty is about to cross swords with the Executioner, and she gives us the uh, the quick and dirty on him. He's an ex-fed, big-time anti-mutant bigot. She kind of acts like he's been away for a while, though I could swear I remember seeing him on a bunch of covers during the Blue and Gold years. Uh, Maybe those were just variants. I don't know. Whatever the case, let me tell you a little bit about the Executioner. Now, picture it. 1993. My friends and I were like 100% positive that this goofball was going to be like the next big thing in the X-Books when he he made his first appearance. Uh, Now, this he either showed up in uh, the Uncanny X-Men or the X-Men Volume 2 Annual for 1993. I think it was Uncanny. Uh, This is when Marvel was introducing new characters in all their 1993 annuals, similar to what DC did with Bloodlines. And they even polybagged these and, uh, and... Put a little trading card in there, so Uncanny X-Men Annual, whatever it was for 1993, was polybagged and had a a very collectible Executioner trading card included. Now, the other X-Men book, which would have been been Volume 2 if my memory's right, uh, gave us a weirdo called Empyrene, who didn't look near as cool as the Executioner. So now, my friends and I, I mean, we were veterans of the comics game at this point. We were probably, uh, we were probably fans for about a year, so we were... We had a lot of ex-fandom under our belts at the time, and we thought we knew a thing or two about the trends in the industry. I mean, after all, we read Wizard every once in a while, you know? Uh, no, we were just very, very stupid. Now, whatever the case, I remember buying this guy's first appearance, and for the longest time, I refused to take it out of the poly bag. Uh, for a little bit of context, in the fall of 1992, the Executioner song came out. Twelve issues across four titles, all polybagged with a trading card, right? Those issues I had zero qualms about opening. This really awful X-Men annual, however, I refused <laughs> because I was sure that the Executioner's debut issue would, uh, you know, I thought this was going to be another New Mutants number 87, you know. It was not. Uh, now, this poor Executioner fellow would only show up a handful of times, and he'd always get his butt handed to him when he did. Uh Weirdly enough, they even gave this guy a Toy Biz action figure, and this figure really sucked. I mean, those things had awful articulation and gimmicky triggers as it was. You know, you pull a little trigger on their back, they do a karate chop or something stupid that really hindered your posability, right? You couldn't just stand them up or, or kneel them down or anything. They had these, this stupid lever sticking out of their back or something. But with the execution, is it, they like, took it to another level. Like, you couldn't even bend him at the elbows or knees. I don't even think you could bend him at the waist. It was very, very awful. Like, you could maybe bend his him at the shoulder joint, I think. Really bad. Um, and it was almost like an insult to injury to, uh, to little Chris's Pollyannish forecasting of this dude's overall importance to the, uh, the X-Books and, and comics history as a whole. All right. Enough of him. Let's get back to the book. Uh, Kitty battles back both the Executioner and the Hatemonger before deciding to maybe jump back over to the vessel that the bad guys arrived on to see what's what. She hops over and discovers that this craft is carrying a whole slew of those Russian-powered dampening suits of armor that we've seen a few times over the past few issues. She then phases to the upper deck and sees Donald Pierce. And uh, yeah, I was wondering slash dreading when he'd finally show up. Also, Chen Zhao. 
Now, they're treating this like a very mundane encounter, or the, the bad guys anyway. Uh, you see, they're here on a diplomatic endeavor, and they, they calmly and politely ask Kitty to depart their rig. She does not. They warn that if she were to attack, that'd be akin to an act of aggression against the sovereign nation of Madripoor. Kitty don't care. Uh, she does not want those suits of armor making it anywhere near shore, and so a fight breaks out. Kitty hip-tosses Donald, threatening to toss him overboard. She also punches Chen Zhao square in the mush. As this scuffle continues, the upstart manages to catch up with its sister ship. Pierce comments that it must be nice for Kitty to be surrounded and protected by all these other powerful mutants, which is a seed of a thought that'll come up again later. Now, the hate monger throws, like, a whole duffel bag full of explosives at Bishop, which, I mean, is a dumb play in any case, especially so when it's Bishop, since he's able to absorb the blast and redirect it back at the bad guys. Storm then commands the wind to swoop old Donald Pierce into the drink. Kitty then sends poor Chen in right after. So we've got our not-so-fearsome foursome all bobbing in the drink. Bobby wakes up, and the team reconnoiters while planning how they're going to get all these boats back home. Kitty agrees to sail the Pierce vessel to Magneto's old island M in the Bermuda Triangle. And at that point, Forge, Beast, and Sage might get a better look at these you know, Russian power-dampening suits of armor. We find out here that Forge was actually in part responsible for them existing in the first place, which may or may not be brand new information, I'm not sure. Now the Marauder and the Upstart will head on back to Krakoa. Storm will portal back quickly in order to inform the Quiet Council about the troubles that are currently brewing in Madripoor. From here we get an info page, and this is some notes like a journal from Yellowjacket. And this is a pretty good info page, because... It fills us in on everything that our little pyro occupant is learning on his trip into Krakoa. We learn a bit more about the Marauder ship itself, too, and, uh, you know, I could probably go for one of those old-fashioned cross-sections to better see this. I mean, we got one for Summer House, right? Why not do it for the Marauder? Anyway, this rig is pretty decked out. It's got a hair salon, a nail salon, a movie theater, and wardrobes full of fabulous clothing. All right, back to comics. Dust is settled, for the most part and we rejoin Kitty on the deck of the Pierce vessel. She is soon approached by Sebastian Shaw, who'd been in hiding this entire time. Now, the first thing he does is fire a net at Lockheed to take him off the board. He then greets Kitty and tells her he's brought a handful of Krakoan seeds with him for this confrontation. Kitty suggests that Shaw might find himself in a stasis alongside Sabretooth when this all gets back to the council, but he ain't worried about none of that. Shaw tosses the seeds at Kitty's feet, and they instantly grow into a tangle of vines which crawl up her body and tangle her up real good. He tells Kitty that none of this is really her fault. It's just that Krakoa never accepted her, and so she must not be penciled in on the future of mutantum. He also, well, you know, he, he wants her seat on the Quiet Council to go to someone he can control. Shaw's yacht arrives on the horizon, and so our man prepares to head off. But first, he decides to dump poor, netted-up Lockheed into the drink. Kitty promises that if Shaw saves her pet dragon, she'll just give him her seat. Shaw's like, nah. Then he deboards, and then he sinks the, uh, the ship. So, we're left with Kitty, all entangled in the vines here, just above the surface of the water as the vessel begins to sink. She yells out to Shaw that if she dies, they'll just bring her back. There's no getting rid of her. Shaw? He isn't so sure about that. Oh. Wow, there's a, there's a sentence where my accent kind of gets in the way, and that Shaw isn't so sure about that. 
He suggests that since Kitty hasn't been accepted by Krakoa, maybe, just maybe, the rules of resurrection might not apply to her. So she'll be dead, dead dead, for good. And so Shinobi will ascend to the Red King's seat, and before long, he'll probably have his own queen in white. He'll have an entire quarter of the Quiet Council and will be wealthier and more powerful than ever. He talks some more. Uh, this dude really likes the sound of his own voice. Makes me happy I'm not narrating this. Uh, he talks about, you know, putting everything into place here. Masterminding the plan to get the Marauder Madripoor bound, if you remember last issue. He seemed to know exactly what was going on, and uh, everything seemed to be falling into place for him. He also made a deal with Donald Pierce. He also chatted up Christian Frost about Kitty's perceived weaknesses and how um, maybe Iceman only turned down his offer to travel with him last issue because, you know, Iceman's an Omega-level mutant and he's needed in order to keep poor Kitty alive because, you know, Kitty might as well be a one-and-done. You know, if she's not accepted by Krakoa, maybe she can't come back. She's got to live her life uh, <laughs> only once. And so we wrap up this issue with Kitty sinking below the surface of the water and, well, drowning. And that's that. Next episode, we will be discussing Excalibur number six. But first, let's talk about what we just read. So, another Dawn of X issue. Another cliffhanger threatening a mutant death, which uh, if you've been following along, you know this is something I've come to really get tired of. Here, though, it works. Not only was this issue fantastic overall, but the tired old cliffhanger of potentially killing a mutant actually feels like it matters. Because at this point, and if we pretend not to know what's happening later, we don't know if Kitty's resurrect resurrectable, easy for me to say. I mean, if we've seen covers for subsequent issues of this book, we have a pretty good idea, but we'll play along. We don't know at the moment if Kitty's resurrectable. I can't say that word. Resurrectable. And here's the thing. This very likely could open up a whole lot of interesting story beats as to Kitty's relationship with Krakoa itself. I mean, let's not pretend Kitty won't be back. She will be back. And that's even assuming that she actually dies here, right? But if she is dead and is resurrectable, we might get a few answers, or at least hints, as to why she's been, like, disallowed from passing through the portals. You know, maybe that'll open up some more information. Maybe we'll find out some stuff about Mora. Who knows? I'm looking forward to it. This was probably the best Hoxpox take on Kitty I've seen to this point. She wasn't overly abrasive, and she wasn't drunk or play-acting drunk. She was scared, she was angry, and this was all very, very well done. Let's hop across to the uh, to the bad guys here. I'm really liking this Hamane's Verende team. Uh, we're actually getting real villains, and not just, like, nameless mercs or monsters of the week. Imagine that. I mean, we're actually using established X-Men lore and X-Men villains to pose a threat to our mostly unkillable-for-long heroes. The tandem of Executioner and Hatemonger, silly as they are, work quite well together. I mean, they're both bigoted douchebags, which I suppose makes them sort of low-hanging fruit, but they're established low-hanging fruit, and it makes 100% complete sense for them to be wrapped up in the Hellfire Tot's plans. Now, this version of Yellow Jacket, not a character I know all that much about, but the way they used, utilized them here was perfect. Implanted into Pyro, who's taking the Marauder back to Krakoa, thereby not having to step through a portal. There's a, really something cool here in the uh, Yellow Jacket journal info page, right? He mentioned something that he'd been led to believe that mutants wanted to exterminate humanity, 
but just from spending a bit of time in and with them, maybe he's not so sure. He, seemed, he says that they seem to be a lot more chill than he was expecting. And uh, so, I mean, it begs the question, could he be coming around? I, I suppose we will have to wait and see. What's cool about this, though, is that we learn that Verendi is using propaganda in order to recruit people to their cause. And not to get all real world on us here, and I think I've said something along these lines before, though I couldn't pinpoint exactly when because, you know, I talk a lot. Let's, for a moment, put ourselves into the human's shoes for a minute on the 616, right? It's easy for us as readers who know and love the X-Men to see them as being completely heroic and hate those who fear and hate them. But, again, let's pretend that we're humans in the 616 for a minute. Mutants have declared not only their sovereignty, but their superiority. Ominous Verende then stokes the flames by propagating that the mutants might not be quite as peaceful as the bald dude in the weird helmet says. Stands to reason that this could very easily get into people's heads and make them very scared. I'm pretty sure I'd be scared. So, in playing off those fears, and as we learned last issue, offering cash prizes, Verendi is able to recruit willing participants to their cause, who are mostly worried about self-preservation rather than relying on an intrinsic hatred of mutant kind. So you don't need bigots. You just got. You just need people who are scared. So this is just so well done on so many levels. I, I mean, and then, I mean, we have Yellow Jacket here. He's showing a little bit of a doubt about the veracity of what he'd been led to believe, which might just be the first crack in the armor. But it's a hell of a place to start, right? I mean, this fantastic stuff. Overall, I loved this issue. I feel like I'm saying this a lot when it comes to Marauders, but this might be the best issue yet. So, a uh, heck of a problem to have, right? <laughs> a series that gets better with every installment? What year are we in? I mean, this doesn't feel like current year. Oh, boy. But, uh, yeah, I love this issue. I hope uh, everybody enjoyed hearing me gush about this issue. But uh, that's about all I have to say about this issue for now. But before we go, let's do a little bit of digging in the mailbag. Okay, we'll start with Damien, who is discussing X-Force number 5 here. And he says, I'm not a big fan of gore in my X-Men comics, but if they insist on doing it, I like them to go over the top. This issue is approaching Lobo levels of cartoon violence. I do like the idea of, ha of half a Wolverine chasing people down, um, and I like the idea of sticking him together like a broken plate. As you say, the whole plot relies on the villains being very stupid. And yes, the, the visuals here with Wolverine, I mean... The look on his face as the top half of him impales one of those Mercs or Xenos or whoever the hell they were. That was very, very funny and definitely uh, almost like evocative of Lobo uh, in in just the look of that panel uh, as, as well as, you know, the tone of it. Um, I did like them sticking him back together. I thought that was cool. Uh, the Mercs, though, the, 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 that was so bad. Um, the... The Mercs or the Xeno people or whoever they were, they were just, like, really, really dumb here. I mean, you'd figure a group of, like, paid mercenaries would, I don't know, maybe do a little bit of homework on what they're doing here. It's, I mean, this is Wolverine, right? Who in the Marvel Universe doesn't know Wolverine? I mean, hell, who in the Marvel Universe does Wolverine not know himself? It seemed very, very strange where maybe any other... Half a X-Man, I would consider fair game for maybe not knowing the 
potential for destruction and violence. But I mean, it's Wolverine. That's that should be the guy. That that should be like the the Ace of Spades card in the uh, in the Who to Avoid list for uh, for X Men bad guys. But uh, Damien continues. Despite all of this, despite all of this, it's never going to be for me, and I'm not warming to it as a whole. Biggest problem remains the out-of-character dialogue. I'm continuing to see the authorial voice overwhelm Beast and Jean in particular. And yeah, it's so very forced. Um, I mentioned when we started this that all I knew Ben Percy from was a run on Teen Titans that I was compelled to write about for a couple of years. And that was not very good. Um, It was actually... It was actually something I came to dread every month. When I knew that Teen Titans was coming out on a particular Wednesday and the comp would arrive in my email box, it was just like, how many different ways can I say I don't like this, you know? Um, without, you know, being you know, being a dick about it, you know? I didn't want to... I didn't want to say anything about the guy, but it was just not a good book. It was not a good fit, I feel like he has like a handful of character archetypes that he really likes to write. And then he kind of just forces them on whatever characters that he's actually being paid to write. Whether it fits the characters or not, it really doesn't matter. It's just the way it's going to be, unfortunately. And that's that's kind of how I feel about his Beast, especially. Uh, I think the Beast is probably the uh, the one with the most damage from this uh, this kind of writing. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Can't wait for tomorrow's Fallen Angels. I know you say it's your least listened to, but I think you do a really good job of explaining how and why it fails, and more people should listen. They're often your funniest episodes, too, but I do have a slightly perverse sense of humor. Well, thank you. (laughs) I definitely wish more people would listen to Fallen Angels episodes. Uh, Heck, I wish more people would listen to all the episodes, but uh, Fallen Angels, they really need some listener love. That's for sure. Um... Those are days where I think I, I think I'm a little bit looser <laughs> because I am I just know nobody's listening to it or very few people are listening to it and it's one of those things where I've said it before I mean all these episodes are free but I still feel like I'm ripping people off for their time when I'm doing a Fallen Angels issue because there's just so little to say um, so I try to try to keep it as light and as fluffy as possible <laughs> in order to make it. At least somewhat engaging. Uh, maybe when I finish the sixth episode, I'll release all six as a massive, co- you know, collected for the trade episode that uh, nobody will listen to. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much, Damien. Um, next up, Jason Colby writes in. He says, I finished my catch-up binge read and binge listen, so now it's time for my binge email. Here are a few things I've thought about while listening to your podcast that I feel like subjecting you to. First, Swords. It's been great fun listening to you take note of every sword alluded to or shown on panel in every Dawn of X book. To tell more would be spoilers, but those of us who are reading in Marvel real-time, and currently well stuck into the X of Tens event, know what I mean. And uh, this is one of those things where I thought, like, kind of like the uh, the Apocalypse A thing, I, I worried about it becoming like an old joke, like... like I was being overbearing and people would be like, oh, this idiot, can he just stop? <laughs> so I... I thought maybe I'd be a, I was being a little bit overbearing, like perking my voice up every time a sword would show up or be referenced to. Um, and uh, I'm thinking here, like I'm trying to do my my calendar. I'm not good at calendars. Uh, I am the guy who 
during my first year blogging, I had 13 days of Christmas because I didn't know how to read a calendar. So that, that, this is all with a shake or a salt here. But the way that this show is going, if everything continues the way it's going to and allotting for space for other projects, I think we'll hit X of 10s by mid-January. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed that I know how to read a calendar, and also fingers crossed that things keep up this way. So by then, we'll have all the sword stuff paying off. Uh, Jason's next point, Brian Edward Hill. He says, you know how there are some comic authors or artists who do phenomenal work, but but you feel bad about liking them because in personal relations, they seem like giant a-holes? Well, Brian Hill is the opposite of that. He's just about the nicest comic creator on Twitter, but has lately been producing work, including Dawn of X's own Fallen Angels, that just doesn't get my engine going. He has a penchant for endless scenes of conversation that are clearly supposed to be deep and meaningful, but really just make me feel bored and nauseated. I do recommend his Marvel Killmonger mini, which was an exploration of the villain character from the Black Panther movie, and especially his Vertigo American Gothic series, which somehow tackles the state of race relations in current year U.S. in a way that doesn't make me want to run for the hills and become a hermit. He's also the writer on the DC streaming TV show Titans, which I've heard that some people like. So now I kind of feel bad. Uh, (laughs) I feel... I'm happy to hear he's a nice guy. But that really makes me feel bad about dogging his work here. Um, I mean, you mentioned comics creators on Twitter. And I'm really only used to knowing current year comics creators by which half of the country they claim to hate (laughs) on Twitter. Um... I'd have to I'd have to keep an eye out for some of his work. I know I've mentioned that I have his his complete run of Batman and the Outsiders, but I haven't read it, so I don't know how that is. But again, that also heavily features Ra's al Ghul, who I cannot stand. So maybe one of these days I'll make a point of uh, of checking out one of those Batman and the Outsiders issues. Maybe do a blog post about it um, just to keep me honest <laughs> and give me and make it a multitasker, right? I can't read things for fun anymore. It has to be for another purpose. Um, But, uh, yeah, I'll have to keep an eye out for some of his work. Uh, Though, if I were to uh, subject myself to the Titans show, I'd need, like, a truckload of Xanax. If if it's the show I'm thinking of, which is the F Batman show, is that the one? As if it is. Yeah, there's probably little possibility of me watching that, ever. (laughs) Uh, Jason continues, Queen and Captain... I'm going to gently disagree with fellow ex-lapsed correspondent Damien. While I know just enough of UK politics to understand that the Queen is generally uninvolved legislation, I don't know why I don't know that it's so relevant to Captain Britain. As I understand it, Captain Britain gains her powers from a magic amulet and a metaphysical relationship between the island of Great Britain and the mystical land of Otherworld. While parliaments are all well and good for passing laws and negotiating trade agreements for mutant pharmaceuticals, it seems to me that all this mystical stuff is far more at home in the world of kings and queens than in the barristers and bureaucrats. It's hard to imagine her royal whiness, Opaluna Saturnine, having tea with Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn. So I'm okay with Betsy meeting directly with Liz, too, and not the backbenchers at Westminster. I didn't know who any of those people were. Uh, (laughs) And I I can totally see that. The Queen is as good a point of contact as any. Though, I say that not only as an American, not only as an ignorant American, but as a willfully ignorant American. Uh, (laughs) I don't pay attention to the politics in my own country, much less globally. Uh, I I view politics as theater, you know? Um, I feel like 
Washington, D.C. has been in gridlock since long before I walked on this earth, and it'll be the same way long after I'm not. So I see American politics as, as a lot of theater. Um, so for someone like me, uh, who, you know, uh, Teeny Howard might just be writing for someone as ignorant as me, the Queen works just fine. Though, that said, I definitely can see how someone from the U.K. or... England or Great Britain or whatever I'm supposed to call that might raise an eyebrow at such a thing uh, being being a thing. Uh, Jason continues regarding X-Men number four. This is one of my favorite Dawn of X issues so far and have been looking forward to hearing your coverage of it. Part of the reason I like it so much is that it deals directly with the issue that most interests me, how the new Krakoa mutants and the human world are coming to terms with each other. Yes, the mutants sort of kind of come across as villains. Yes, the humans more than kind of sort of come across as villains themselves. But I can see the validity of both sides of this inevitable conflict, and this rising tension is something that made Hawks and Pox so special. Charles and Eric have founded a nation. I want to see it act like a nation. And I'm glad that, that we're bringing this up today, because uh, we I, I spent a little while before talking about the humans in the 616 and how, how as readers we have this... I don't want to say knee-jerk reaction, but we have, like, our heart is with the X-Men, right? I mean, whether we've been reading forever or just a little while, we know that the X-Men are who we should be rooting for. So we have this sort of preconception about the humans in that that they are going to be the villainous side here. And we can't always explain why. You know, I remember reading, like, the old Wizard magazines back in uh, the 90s, and the, or the old, any, any sort of promotional thing that the X-Men would have, like the Pizza Hut X-Men special comics from, like, 92, 93. They would always have, like, a list. It's like, oh, here's the, the X-Men's ten worst enemies, and, like, you'd get to number two, and it would be Magneto. And it's like, well, who could be number one? And then you turn the page, and number one is humans. <laughs> it was always humans. It was so heavy-handed, and it's like, well, humans hate them and fear them, and yada, yada, yada. In this situation, I, I as I mentioned earlier, discussing the ones that uh, that the uh, the little Hellfire Club are, you know, putting into into the position. I think a lot of it is a uh, self-preservation, right? The humans here, they're worried. And the mutants here, they are also worried. So it's like acts of self-preservation are almost bound to make anyone look somewhat villainous because you're looking out for yourself, right? It's it's maybe not necessarily screw the other guy, but it's I'm worrying about myself. If they come along, that's great. If not, I'm worried about me. In this uh, little summit here, neither side came across all that great. And uh, something that kind of got under my skin, but I understood it, was that it was almost passive aggressive? The uh, I mean Magneto quoting Huxley, and it's like, come on, dude. Uh, I, I felt like it was almost passive aggressive, and I think I came away from that issue more uncomfortable than anything. And uh, this this Dawn of X run I mentioned before has a has a penchant for uh, low hanging fruit, you know where. Of course, it's going to be the the dumb American. It's going to be he's going to be the one who's going to be the the mustache twirling bad guy. And uh, I don't know. I don't want to say that was lazy, but I, I think it was a little too easy. Uh, back to back to Jason. He says, unless I'm mistaken, this issue also features the very first time in the Hickman era that we see Charles remove his cerebro helmet. So this issue also marked the death of my Charles Xavier is the maker theory. And of course, the maker 
was uh, Reed Richards from the Ultimate Universe, if I'm remembering right. Uh, Jason continues, I still haven't figured out why Hickman hid Professor X's face from us until this moment, if this really is just plain old Charles Xavier. This seems like it should have been a bigger deal. Maybe Hickman was just messing with us. And it's funny you mention that, because I was actually going to comment on that during the episode, but I wasn't sure this actually was the first time Xavier was seen without his headwear. You know, and I, but I think you're right. Um, I, I would have to pull out the issue of X-Force where he, you know, pops out of his gold ball to see if he was wearing, or not, not to see if he was wearing a helmet, of course, but to see if they showed his full head or if it was, you know, hindered in some sort of a way like it, like it has been for so much of this run. But I think you're right. And yeah, I don't know why they waited so long if it was just going to be plain old Charles. It seems very strange. Um, Jason continues And the menu from the meeting Watermelon watermelon gazpacho and all that Is one of my favorite data pages in all of Dawn of X Every time I see a data page I ask myself Is this an object that would really truly exist in this world? This menu passes the test with flying colors To me it makes the world feel much more solid and three-dimensional Than what we get pretty much all other you mentioned that along with the comics you uh, sorry, you mentioned that along with the comics themselves, you like to collect posters and other ephemera that exists alongside the comics. If you lived in a world where Krakoa were real, wouldn't you like to own a copy of the menu from the first meeting of the Krakoan Council and the great and good of the International Order of Davos? I know I would, and yes, yes, your point is well taken here. If I frame it that way. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I never considered the data page as ephemera or a commodity. Um, I see the data pages as information that they don't feel like drawing more often than that or or a way to meet a page quota that they otherwise wouldn't. But to look at it through a different way here and see this as um, something that could exist in the real world, yeah, yeah, definitely. Your point is 100% well taken. And yes, that is something I would definitely like to own. Uh, for sure, especially if uh, you know it has like a the ring from a bottom of a champagne flute on it, maybe the little condensation ring. So it's it, it'd be a lived-in piece of ephemera. Uh, Jason continues the upstart. Thank you for calling out how the name of this book connects to Shinobi's past exploits. That comes from a bit of X history I haven't read and is something I didn't pay the slightest attention to on my initial Dawn of X read-through. It's nice to see such connections between this new status quo and what's come before. So when you notice such things, please keep pointing them out. And yes, uh, that's, you know, seeing and pointing out these old references is some of the funnest stuff about doing this show. Um, I mean, not only do I just, am I just a sucker for that thing, sort of thing, it's uh, also further... um, Validation that these things actually happened, right? That was the thing I was worried about when we started this. And I mentioned shoes dropping until, you know, my tongue almost fell out. But I was always worried that we were going to find out that certain things didn't happen, certain things happened in different timelines. When we get stuff like this, these callbacks, that's just further, it's more concrete that these things actually happened. And uh, I love it. So I will always point those things out. And uh, it's some of the funnest part of this, especially on Marauder's Day, since this seems to be the book that ha- that's like most proud of actually having a history, right? <laughs> I mean, there's hardly an issue of Marauder's Goes By where I don't get tickled by something, by a nod to the past. So that's, that's very, very cool. Jason continues, the hate monger. I didn't know who the hate monger was. I don't know who a lot of these characters are. So after reading Marauders number five and seeing online who the characters in the cliffhanger were, I went and Googled hate monger. 
Hatemonger is ridiculous. That's all I have to say about that. And, uh, yep, <laughs> he sure is. What I think about when I think of the Hatemonger is a poster that Marvel put out probably 1989 or so. And it's this giant poster featuring just about every Marvel character. And uh, they give you a picture of it in all Marvel comics. And, of course, comics were printed on newsprint back then, so you don't really get a good look at, like... It's not a high-definition picture, you know? So if you wanted to actually see it, you'd have to buy this giant poster that has all the characters on it. And in the ad, it would say, it's like, Buy this and find the hate monger. It's like, hint, he's the one in the middle. So it's like, uh, that's what I always think about when I think about the hate monger. Um, other than the fact that he is, uh, you know, pants on head ridiculous. So yes. Uh, he continu- Jason continues. In his coven. Speaking of ridiculousness, you seem to think it was at least a little bit ridiculous that in Excalibur number 5, Apocalypse referred to Richter Gambit et tal as his coven. I thought this was a nice parallel with the coven Akaba. As, as has that has been working for Morgan and against Apocalypse's interest all this time. He seems like the kind of guy who, if his enemy has a coven, he wants to have one too. And I can see that. I can see that. Apocalypse is a fairly self-important dude who, uh, who would probably want to have what his enemy has. It, I guess it just felt a little stilted to me. But then again, Excalibur as a whole feels pretty stilted to me, so... Mileage may vary. <laughs> uh, Jason continues, Dragonfire. When it was revealed that Shogo's Dragonfire is something that can weaken the wall separating our mundane reality from other world, I flipped back to the issue to s- where this happened to see what it looked like on the page. Surely the art would have contained hints that something special was going on, that this was the very fabric of magical space-time being rent asunder before our very eyes. Nope. Just some very standard-looking green flames that make the bad guys run away and let the good guys escape. This feels like a missed opportunity. In contrast, when we learned in a data page in X-Force number 2 that Professor X had been tracked to Krakoa by a homing device, whose likely source was the champagne or crab cake appetizers from the Sokovian Treaty Ceremony, I flipped back to that ceremony as depicted in X-Force number 1, and son of a gun, but on the bottom of page 21, we can see something very suspicious looking in Charles' champagne flute. Call me greedy, but this is the kind of tight continuity and attention to detail that I want to see more of in these books. And yes, that's a great call-out. That's an awesome call-out, and I... Looking at it now, because you did include a picture in your your message, uh, looking at it now, the attention that they paid to it, I should have seen it. (laughs) I definitely should have noticed it, but I missed it. I totally missed it. That's an awesome call-out. And I'll admit, uh, sometimes I do skim the info pages. Sometimes they're a bit much, so (laughs) I apologize for that. But no, that's an awesome call-out. And definitely a piece of tight continuity that uh, these books could use more of, uh, for sure. Uh, Jason wraps up his message with, That's well more than enough for me, so I'm going to wrap up. Until Magneto finds himself stuck to a refrigerator, make mine X-lapsed. And uh, thank you so much for all your thoughts. That's that's some great stuff. I, I love getting... I love all these messages. It's it's probably the, the most fun part of the show is uh, being able to talk to folks and uh, and compare notes. It's it's very, very cool, very, very satisfying, and uh, really means a lot to me, more than I can put into words. We have one more piece of mail to do here. It's from Al Sedano, and he just read House of X number 6, so episode 11. He's got one more to go before the Dawn of X reaches him. He says, just one more to go, and it's time to dive into the first Dawn of X trade after that. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. There's a lot of stuff in this issue alone. 
First of all, there is Xavier's speech. Damn, it's something like Xavier would say, but if Magneto had, given, had been given the chance to rewrite it. Now I can see what you're saying, looking at the speech from the point of view of the humans in the Marvel Universe. The irony of it is, it's their fault. They could have accepted mutants and had, and had them work with them in the current societies to stop the evil ones and subjected the same laws. But they didn't. And yes, 100% true. A lot of chickens coming home to roost here, for sure. Uh, Al continues, Now we know who everyone is on the Quiet Council, except for Emma's pick of the Red King or Queen. From just being on Twitter, I think I know who that is, but I'll see if I'm right before saying anything. I do want to know why on the info page, their empty spot and Krakoa's are both shaded the same way. Don't we already know that Krakoa's there? And yeah, that is weird. I actually had to pull out the issue again to check. And uh, yeah, they both have like uh, they both have like hash lines going through them. It's very, very strange. Um, yeah, Krakoa is not an unknown entity at the table, so that's strange. Um, and I'm trying to remember who I had picked as Red King or Queen. I think even at this point, maybe not at this point, but early on, I assumed that it might be uh, Mora herself was going to be the Red Queen. But uh, no, <laughs> that was not the case at all. Uh, as it, when you get to this episode, you'll know, especially this episode, because uh, the Red Queen kind of dies here. Uh, Al continues, just like you, I must have missed when Sinister went crazy. I hope someone who's been reading the last few years has written in to let us know when this happened. And I'm thinking back, and I think someone did write in and said that he was depicted this way or in this manner during the 2015 Secret Wars. So that either happened or I dreamt it, which would tell you a lot about my dreams. <laughs> They're pretty sad, I guess. But, uh, yeah, Sassy Sinister, I want to say it was Secret Wars, and I also want to say, because, I mean, Hickman was... 2015 Secret Wars, so maybe, maybe that's where it comes from. Uh, Al continues, Speaking of Xavier and Magneto acting more like one another, it's weird how Mags was the first one to agree with Jean's law of kill no human. I would have thought Xavier would have been first. I wonder if hearing about that law would placate most of the human population. And I had, I had the issue out already, so I double-checked this, because, not because of this scene in particular, but because I could have sworn the law was kill no man and not kill no human. And in re rechecking the pages here, it looks like I was both right and wrong. Gene indeed says kill no human. However, the actual info page that decrees the laws of Krakoa simply says kill no man. And I believe I called that into question after Magic had asked if any of her alien pursuers were human in New Mutants number 5 to see whether or not she's allowed to kill them. So I guess it's still sort of nebulous. Uh, it says kill no man on the, on the decree, but kill no human during the meeting... I don't know. Uh, now, as, as for Xavier wanting to agree, I remember being very uncomfortable during this scene and uh, almost feeling like Xavier was a little in over his head. Like he didn't, he didn't really know how to run a government. So I think maybe here he was just sitting back and watching the government take shape without much of his own intervention to see just, you know, what this council he put together is going to do and what they'll say without him putting his thoughts out there because what he says pretty much goes right so i think he was just maybe giving them a little bit of autonomy in deciding uh what's going to stand uh what they're going to allow to stand on krakoa uh, al continues 
Regarding your question about Krakoa having some, some kind of stasis tubes, in Giant Size number 1, it was holding the original X-Men prisoner in something similar, so this really isn't much of a stretch. And yes, that's totally right. Uh, I believe Lamar wrote in uh, back in the long ago to mention this, uh, and I totally neglected that myself, despite the fact that probably like three months ago I did a, like a long-form review on, on Giant Size on the blog. So yeah, I totally spaced it. <laughs> Um, Al wraps up with, finally, about Damien's feedback in this episode. Husk and Archangel once had sex in midair in front of her mother, so I don't think those two have much shame. As for his comment about Storm having rejected godhood before, acting in a high priestess capacity isn't really the same as far as I see it. Also, most of, those, most of the time those were offered to her by villains, so as much as she was rejecting that, she was also rejecting them. This situation might be different. And I have to pull up the old script to see what that is. And uh, in doing so, I realized how long the script for episode 11 was. It was like nearly 30 pages. Oh, boy. And probably probably very long. Um, I think it was a long episode, maybe like close to an hour. Um, I think this was a reference, if I'm not mistaken, to the Greg Pak Storm series, which came out around the time I started to, like, nope out of the uh, X-Men solo stuff. So I really can't speak to that. I don't know if uh, maybe Damien can help out. I don't exactly remember um, that. Or actually, I, I, not that I don't remember it. I just don't plain, I plain don't know it because I, I wasn't reading that. Um, and yes, <laughs> Husk and Archangel bumping uglies in front of the Guthries. Yeah, we really didn't dis- deserve the majesty of the Chuck Austin X-Men, did we? I mean, that was, that was something great. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think I think I mentioned this probably a couple episodes ago. The the whole thing with them being nude, I took that as a reference to or a nudge uh, about like the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You know, they had no shame there. They were uh, they were just kind of living the way they were. You know, before they found shame. So maybe a sign of uh, of innocence in their rebirths. I don't know. But uh, but yeah. There was that. Uh, I'll close out with uh, one more to go, and I'm definitely looking forward to your thoughts on Powers of X or Powers of Ten. Maybe I'll finally start calling it what it's supposed to be. No, I probably won't. Powers of X number six. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll you'll give us like a full rundown of your Hoxpox experience. Um, if I'm remembering right, and I'm pretty sure I am because I think I cited this a couple episodes ago, uh, I was a little bit underwhelmed by Powers of X number six. While I absolutely adored House of X number six and kind of wish it'll ended here, but definitely looking forward to that, and uh, also looking forward to hearing from other folks out there, seeing what you guys think of what's going on then, now, or whenever in the X books. So if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find all the show notes and stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. The Xlapsed page is xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can find the Facebook group at 90s X-Men and the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. So, I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Uh, Next time, we will be talking about Excalibur, which will hopefully be a better time than the last time we talked about Excalibur, but uh, no promises. (laughs) They're making me no promises, so in turn, I'm passing the savings on to you and making no promises myself. But, fingers crossed, we'll hope for the best. Now, for those listening in real time, the next episode of X-Lapsed is going to be something a little different. A little different, a little special. It's going to be a little spin-off that uh, 
we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. I hope people enjoy it or tolerate it. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> I'm definitely looking forward to hearing folks' thoughts on the episode that will come out on Sunday. So, with all that said, one more giant thank you to everyone for listening and writing in. It makes so much of this worthwhile. I can't even put into words what it means to me that uh, that there are folks listening and uh, taking time out of their day to uh, to interact and engage. It really, it really makes me feel good. So thank you all. Thank you all so much for sharing your time with me. But until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 44 of x Lapsed, where it looks like we're sort of kind of wrapping up a uh, story arc here in the pages of Excalibur. Uh, fingers crossed that uh, maybe we'll be able to, I don't know, stay out of Otherworld for a little while, but uh, I suppose that remains to be seen. Uh, we are talking about Excalibur number 6. Uh, this is Excalibur volume 4, number 6, uh, March 2020 cover date. The story is called Verse 6, Watch the Throne. Written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Archinaga. Letters, VCs Corey Petit. Design, Tom Muller. He gets a uh, credit this time. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa white Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99 American. Went on sale January 22nd, 2020. Now we open on Krakoa, where he is already being brought back to life. So, uh, is this a record? There's got to be a record, right? I think he was only dead for, like, two pages. Maybe. A page or two. Anyway, Professor X expresses how disappointed he is that Apocalypse abused their resurrectability as a way of getting what he wanted. Now, if you'll recall, Apocalypse needed the energy from his aged bones to power that crystal to do whatever the hell it was going to do to that gateway to Otherworld. Uh, here, in the storm role of, like, reborn mutant presenter is the uh, similarly newborn weirdo Jamie Braddock. So, there's that. 
and this won't be the last time we see him today. Info page, and it's a map of Avalon and Otherworld, which, I don't know, is kind of unnecessary in my opinion. Because really, I mean, does it matter what Avalon looks like? This could have been a narrative caption one sentence long, but instead, it eats up an entire page. And also, if I'm not mistaken, it might give away, like, a swerve that happens later in the issue. Maybe I'm wrong, but then again, uh, maybe I'm just allergic to Avalon and have already checked out. Speaking of eating up pages, let's get to our roll call. We got Apocalypse. We got that weirdo Jamie Braddock. We got Morgan Le Fay, Betsy Britton, Shogo, Jubilee, Gambit, Richter, Rogue, and Betsy's bombastically beautiful British brother Brian Braddock. Then, hey, we're back to a double-page spread of cred, so I guess last last episode's issue of Marauders was, unfortunately, an anomaly. But maybe since we have two pages, they could fit Tom Muller on there. Maybe they couldn't fit him in when it was just one. So if that's the case, then I guess uh, if it helps Tom Muller get a credit, I'm for it. When we finally get back to comics content, uh, Morgan Le Fay is battling back the brigades of the White Witch. Did we miss something? Was there like a tremendously boring Otherworld one-shot that I forgot to add to my comics order that month? Do we even know who this White Witch is? Is is it Saturnine? I mean, it almost has to be, right? Oh well, it isn't long before Excalibur arrives on the scene complete with Baby Dragon Shogo, and they join the fight. Uh, They proceed to engage with Morgan Le Fay's forces, however, aren't able to put much of a dent into them. Just then, A appears. He reveals that, as a member of the Quiet Council, he's able to be pushed ahead in the Resurrection queue, which explains how he came back so quickly. Maybe a little too quick for my taste, but eh, you know what? Whatever gets his story over faster is just fine by me. He begs Betsy Britton's indulgence as he has a plan for victory that he would like to uh, maybe look into. Betsy tells him she doesn't need or want his help, but come on, you do. Just let him do what he's going to do. And so, A tromps over to Morgan Le Fay, who stands her men down in order to listen. Now, his plan is Braddock vs. Braddock for control of Otherworld in a duel, so Betsy vs. Brian. And Morgan is actually kind of giddy at the possibilities, and she agrees to the terms. She doesn't think that her Black Knight will, uh, will go down in this fight. We shift to a little bit later on, where Rogue and Betsy are having themselves a chat. They're talking about A's proposition, and basically, whether or not Betsy can actually do the thing. Maybe not so much win the fight, but can she kill her brother? Rogue assures Betsy that no matter what happens, she's the hero here. Then, A shows up to interrupt and let him know that the now is the time. Worth noting, Apocalypse is walking with the help of a cane, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's a nice bit of detail to show that maybe he's pushing himself a bit too soon, right? He's not able to hold his full heft up by himself. So, let's get to dueling. Betsy and Brian X their swords and for the next few pages engage in battle. Jubilee, who's flying on Dragonback, asks her son to get them into position just in case Betsy needs an assist. A reaches out to her telepathically and tells her that she is in no way to interfere. But she should still stay close, as A might just have use for Shogo's Dragonfire. Oh, and he also claims to have found a remedy for the fire's reality-rending qualities. Uh, remember, it did tear a hole in the very... The very seams of reality, or whatever it was. Fabric, that's the word I'm looking for. So, the fight continues, and it's a pretty even match. 
That is, until Brian gets an eyeful of who's currently sitting on the throne. It's that weirdo Jamie Braddock, who's sitting there like he's trying to air himself out. Now, this momentary distraction is just enough for Betsy to disarm and then run Brian's own sword right through him. She apologizes immediately and attempts to explain that she had no other choice. As the dust settles, he commands Shogo to do his thing, and so it's fire-breathing time. Morgan's remaining forces either scatter or burn, so it's like, I, I guess we're not really paying much attention to that whole kill-no-man law, are we? I, I, <laughs> I feel like every team that we follow in these Dawn of X books are like the lone exceptions to the rule, you know? it's If, if you're all accepted from it, then what's the point of the rule? Alright, so Brian's dead, Morgan's forces are Dunsky, all that's left to do now is bow down to the king. And while we learned last issue, uh, or maybe the issue before that, that Apocalypse had his eyes on the throne, it's here we find out that, yeah, he, he sure did have his eyes on the throne, but it wasn't intended for his big blue butt. Hey, he bows down to the king, King Weirdo I, Jamie Braddock. Now, Jamie's first act is capturing Morgan Le Fay in a cage. She argues she protests this move because she claims the arrangement that they made was that if her knight lost, she'd be allowed to live in exile. And Jamie's all, yeah, that's right, but uh, you really don't get to choose where that exile is going to be, so tough noogies. Betsy slaps Jamie in the back of his head and commands that he bring back Brian. When he doesn't get right to it, Betsy, uh, well, she stomps on Jamie's genital region which is probably something he's used to like paying big bucks to get women to do. He eventually relents, or climaxes, at which time he goes about reviving his beautiful brother Brian. Brian wakes up, and he's both shocked and disappointed that his weirdo brother has been resurrected. Jamie's happy that Betsy kept his, you know, his resurrection a secret from Brian like he'd asked her to. He then uses his reality-warping powers to... place jester hats on his siblings. You know, really important stuff here. Uh, Betsy and Brian turn to A to ask what he's thinking, and A says it's a no-brainer. Jamie is one of the most powerful mutants going, and his power set and name makes him the logical choice as ruler over Otherworld. And you know what? Just as long as we don't have to visit the place every issue, I could give a rat's ass who they put in charge of it. Now we shift scenes back to Krakoa, and we join Rogue and Gambit, who are having a bath together. They're in a little hot tub here. Rogue, by the way, is back to normal. She's not all apocalypsy anymore. They have themselves a chat about whether or not they're ready, or will ever be ready, to have children. Rogue thought it would be the next logical step after getting married, but she ain't so sure that this is the direction they ought to be going. Gambit, he's cool with it either way, so long as they still get to do it. That's fine. Uh, back at Braddock Manor, Betsy heads into Brian's room so she can take him back to Krakoa to be with Megan and Maggie for some dinner. She finds Brian sitting at the edge of his bed holding his sword, and this is the Sword of Might. And I have a sneaking suspicion we'll be seeing more of this thing, eventually. Uh, Brian's pretty down on himself. He says he failed the Captain Britain test. And if you're familiar with Captain Britain and the Captain Britain test, you know it's uh, where you're supposed to choose either to take the sword or the amulet. And while under Morgan Le Fay's spell, he chose the sword. Betsy consoles him and reminds him that he wasn't himself. Brian laments that, whatever the case, that witch ruined his life. He then manifests a brand new Captain Britain costume, which is a really, really cool and striking mix of, like, his old, his original costume with, like, his hair out the top and the classic costume. It's a really good look. I like it a lot. 
Now we wrap up back in Otherworld, where King Weirdo hears the White Witch's forces approaching. He heads down to the lab to confer with A, and we find him conducting an operation or an experiment on Morgan Le Fay, where she's gutted and connected to some of those glowing crystals. We have one more info page that I ain't going to read, and we're out of here. Speaking of being out of here, next episode, we finally, finally wrap up Fallen Angels, and hopefully we'll never have to speak of it again. But before we get there, let's talk about what we just read. I'm going to hand it to him, okay? Uh, I never thought they'd be able to give us any sort of resolution in this sixth issue. You know, the Marvel method, six issues by hook or by crook. And yet here we are. Um, sure, we had to like we had to like Mach five through A's resurrection to get here, but whatever, right? At least at least it's over, right? That said, let's consider the overall pacing for this arc. It was kind of all over the place, no? I mean, this six issue story here, in many ways, even defies like the writing for the trade sort of storytelling. We get so much build up, so much scenery. And it winds up climaxing in a pretty inorganic one-on-one duel. And a duel that was largely theater to begin with. I mean, what was stopping that weirdo Jamie Braddock from caging Morgan Le Fay while Shogo blew fire on the forces from the get-go? I don't know. I mean, this story is one where I feel like the closer you look at it, the the more the holes (laughs) show. You know, the more holes in it you see. Um, Let's look at some of the stuff I like, because despite... You know, any complaint I have, I actually did like this issue. I didn't think it was bad. I I like the Rogue and Gambit scene on Krakoa. Though, I will say, they made me feel absolutely ancient. Because uh, they referred to themselves as being young and feisty back in the long ago. And uh, I remember those days. And I didn't know that they'd age so much in the interim. But I, I guess they did. <laughs> that makes me feel very, very old. Now, it makes sense for Rogue, or I guess anyone, really, to worry about having children. That's a normal a normal fear, a normal bit of trepidation that I can get behind. Uh, personally, I'd like to keep Gambit and Rogue childless. But then again, I prefer as little change as possible anyway. I'm pretty much barely coming to terms with the fact that Rogue seems to have control over her powers, you know? Uh, for so long, she was pretty much defined by her inability to touch and be touched. I gotta ask, when did this happen? When did this change occur? I want to say I was still reading when it happened, but damned if I could pinpoint when it was and how it came about. I I don't know if it was within the past few years, or maybe it was like the tail end of my, my, you know, ongoing reading, and I just forgot about it. But I do not remember this being a thing. Is is the... ah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if she's wearing a uh, some sort of inhibitor. I mean, there are, there are damn sure are enough of them in this uh, Dawn of X world, but uh, I don't think that's the case. So if anybody out there remembers, please feel free to let me know. Educate me. Uh, one thing, though, about Rogue here, she doesn't seem all that affected having just killed Apocalypse. I mean, whether she was tricked into it or not, she actually used her powers to take a life. Uh, I figured she'd at least take a moment to examine that and maybe reconcile that. I don't know. I mean, we're we're treating death so strangely in this in these books here, where like we understand that the stakes have changed, and this is something that I've said dozens of times already. But uh, you're still, if you're killing someone, you're still killing someone. 
right? Even if they're going to come back, you're still ending a life for a time. You're putting someone through something that, uh, you know, people shouldn't be put through. I don't know. It just feels like since the stakes have changed, we all value these lives so much less, you know? Um, I don't know. It's like, I really don't know. I, I, I don't like how lightly they're taking lives here, even though, I mean, even though li- lives and deaths are, are pointless, relatively speaking in this book, I still don't like the fact that they're uh, they're so glib and uh, they really don't they don't stop and think about it is what I'm worried about. Uh, now Jamie, for as gross and as weird as he is, he has this sort of charm to him. Uh, I can't help but kind of like him, and I wouldn't mind seeing a lot more of him so long as it has nothing to do with Otherworld, which uh, I guess pretty much means that I'm out of luck. Uh, Apocalypse, he is still. Probably the most interesting and the strongest member of this cast And uh, outside the outrageously dull grimoire info pages I really enjoy what they're doing with them I'm intrigued and excited to see, you know, what his endgame is and how it plays out Uh, For the past, you know, six issues He's more or less been playing chess with the rest of the cast Which, to me, is probably the best way to utilize him Because he is so powerful And, uh I mean, he could wipe these guys out, but he's using them for his own means here, and I like that. This is good stuff. Uh, really, the only bits of this that I that I like didn't care for were the parts wrapped up in otherworldly lore. Um, I think if we can ever get to a point where Excalibur could just like hang out on Earth, <laughs> I really come around to liking and, and maybe even championing this book. Uh, I'm enjoying these interpersonal scenes that we're getting. I like seeing Rogue and Psylocke talking. I like seeing Rogue and Gambit together. I'm liking, you know, Jubilee and Apocalypse talking. I, I, I like that kind of stuff, but it's all this Otherworld stuff. Uh, I And I mean, I know that we're going to have some Otherworld stuff in the, uh, the X of Tens event, so I'm not... I know it's coming back. I just don't know how soon it's coming back. But uh, hopefully we get a few issues where maybe we're just... Uh, maybe, you know, Betsy and, and her friends go to the pub or something. Or maybe they fight... I don't know. Maybe they find some leftover Reaver or something. I don't know. Just give me something that is another world, and I'll, I'll be okay with it. Bring bring back TechNet. You know, get the Warwolves in here. Do some actual Excalibur stuff. But uh, I guess, you know, I guess we'll wait and see on that. Overall... I'm happy that we got like a measure of resolution here for this opening arc And outside of knowing full well that Otherworld isn't going away I'm somewhat optimistic to see what's to come But I think that's all I got to say about Excalibur number 6 But uh, before we go, we have a very, very short mail segment here Just one letter from Damien And he's talking about Fallen Angels number 5 Damien says, You established, reading my feedback on this episode, that my sense of humor is quite dark, and I have to let you know that I find these episodes hilarious. I was genuinely laughing out loud at your comments. I'm not sure you picked up on all the subtleties in the story, so I just wanted to make sure you were aware that Betsy Braddock used to be in Quinnon's body, and that caterpillars turn into butterflies, and, uh... Yes, I, I believe that's going to be on the test. I th- <laughs> they're mentioning it an awful lot here. Yeah, the uh, Fallen Angels is, uh, I don't want to say it sucks, but uh, <laughs> it's something else in it. Uh, thankfully, we only have one more. Um, but yeah, they 
they're really driving home a lot of this poetic sort of uh, purple nonsense here with everything's about caterpillars and butterflies and uh we can't it seems like we can't go not even full issues we can't even go a handful of pages without Quanan mentioning that she still you know feels Betsy in her body and it's just too much i mean Quanan is very much a one dimensional character as it is and all we do in in in, in, in this repetition all we do is is like put that in concrete right it's like we're not giving this character a chance to grow, a chance to evolve. It's all about butterfly imagery and the fact that Betsy was in her body. That's it. I mean, maybe they're trying something new here with this Apoth thing, but the fact that so much of it is informed by the fact that we have worms and butterflies in Betsy's body, it's way too much. Way too much. Damien continues, Talking of subtlety, did you notice how they justified the book title by calling Bling and Husk angels? As subtle as a hang glider flashing and... I... I must have checked out. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> I don't... I, uh... Man, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't notice that, but yes. That is, uh, fairly blatant. And, uh, you know, I think Husk... She's kind of used to like something along the lines of a hang glider flashing. If uh, I'll go back to you know pull out the old chestnut that I'll, I'll remind everyone here that she and Warren Worthington banged in front of her parents in midair. You know that's that's up there with a uh, caterpillar turned into butterflies. Betsy was in Quinon's body and Husk and Angel banged in midair in front of her parents. So that's there. Uh, Damien wraps up with still can't believe that they published six issues of this. I haven't read the last issue yet, but it clearly has little to no impact as I've read Quanon's appearances in X of Tens, and she doesn't appear any different. Weird. And yeah, I mean, this is... This is up there with, like, some of the most pointless stuff I've I've ever read as part of, like, a shared universe or a, a line, you know, a line of books. We already saw in, the, in X-Men number 5, uh, X-23 is back. She's just back, and she's in her Wolverine outfit. It's very, very strange that uh, what's happening in this book is not being... It's not being reflected, which makes you, you know, beg the question, why are we even bothering with this? Unless this sixth issue is going to establish that Quanan's sword is in some way special, and that's what gets us to Exitens. I, I don't know. It's like, But that seems like... I mean, six issues... 20 pages of pop word, 120 pages, give or take, all to say that, hey, this sword that Betsy, or not Betsy, Quanan has, is important. It's going to be one of the ten, if that's even the thing that's going on over there. I don't know, it just seems like uh, we're taking the scenic route, and it's a, uh, it's actually like if you go, if you go for a ride in the country and you take the scenic route, and like the most interesting thing you see is a cow. You know, that's not very interesting. I I don't need to see a cow in real life. I know what cows look like, so it's a it's a very boring scenic route is where we're what we're going through through here. And uh, I mean, we are just about to read the sixth issue. That's going to be the next episode of this program. So maybe it'll totally blow us away. Maybe it's been hiding in it's been hiding in the bushes for five issues, and then it's going to just leap out on us and blow our minds. We gotta hope, right? We gotta have hope. Otherwise, why are we even bothering, right? 
So we'll, we'll keep positive thoughts, and we will uh, hope for the best. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Damien. I, I definitely appreciate you listening to Fallen Angels Day. <laughs> the proud, the few. And, uh, and I appreciate uh, you, uh, you enjoying my attempts at levity during this episode, because uh, this is one of those you got to laugh or you'll cry sort of things. So thank you so much. Um, now, I think that's where we'll, we'll end it for today. Uh, so if anybody would need to or like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes and the stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, Facebook, 90sxmen, chrisandreggie.podbean.com for the audio archives. And hey, if you, if you see me anywhere you know, sharing these shows here, and if you're, if you're enjoying what I do, hey, maybe share it out. Maybe uh, help, me, uh, help me propagate this program throughout uh, all different avenues. So... I would very, very much appreciate that uh, getting some some new eyes and ears on this uh, on this little project that we've been uh, this little journey that we've been on together. So that's where we'll leave it for today. Uh, just one more giant thank you for everyone taking their time to listen and, and write and uh, sharing your time with me. If it's a uh, if I'm on your commute to work or walk through the park or uh, wherever we are together, I very much appreciate it. So till next time. Thank you, and I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 45 of X-Last, where we are finally, finally going to be wrapping up the Fallen Angels miniseries. I never thought we'd get here, and uh, I just might cry. I mean, I've been looking forward to this for many, many days now. So here we go. We're going to actually wrap this sucker up here. This is, of course, Fallen Angels Volume 2, Number 6, had a March 2020 cover date. Fittingly, it's called Conclusion, written by Brian Hill with art by Simon Gadransky, 
Colors Frank D'Armada, letters VCs Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Robinson White Sabolski, cover price $3.99 American, went on sale January 29th, 2020. We open with our roll call. And it's, you know, Psylocke, Quanon, Revenge, whatever we're calling her. Cable, Husk, Bling, X-23, and Mr. Sinister. Then we get two pages of people claiming credit to, you know, creating this thing. Uh, so we get into the comics content here, and uh, just three panels into page one, and we already get our regular reminder that, get this, Betsy Braddock once inhabited Quanon's body. I think that might be a record, though. I could be mistaken. Now, this is overlaid with some expectedly purple narration, during which Psylocke tells us how she destroys everything that she loves. And uh, she must love the hell out of this comic book, then. Now, while our gal is zoned out huffing her own insecurities, we see the rest of the angels running toward something. Psylocke gives X-23 some orders and uh, reminds us that she's still a caterpillar. Uh, then she go, we go into like this full-on Final Fantasy cutscene mode here, like like for real, like Betsy's running, and I, I can almost hear like the orchestra and the chanting. I swear, looking at this scene, I'm hearing like the amped-up bits from Final Fantasy VIII's opening cutscene, where like Squall and Cipher or Cipher, whatever, however you say his name, are, are dueling. Is that a good thing? I don't know. <laughs> it's a it's distracting me from this comic we're supposed to be discussing, so I guess we could put a check in the win column, right? Now, Psylocke runs across some wreckage. Of course, we're in Dubai. It leaps into the air, sprouts psionic butterfly wings, and then ascends toward the top of a nearby skyscraper. <sighs> Meanwhile, back on the ground, the rest of the angels are being descended upon by some Apothians. Well, I'm, I'm assuming they're Apothians. Uh, we don't get all that good a look at them. Cable tosses a phosphorus bomb or something at them, which causes them to fall back a bit. X-23 asks how much crazy Cable brought with him, to which he replies, plenty. Not sure that's going to matter all that much, but great. Back to Psylocke, who is still ascending. Now, atop the tower, she runs into the hefty bag phantom, and uh, I suppose we could probably just guess that this is the real deal Apoth, maybe? Who cares? They talk for a bit before Psylocke places one of them Apothean dome doohickeys on her own head, you know? Uh, she's suddenly surrounded by digital imagery, so maybe she's fighting the big bad bag on his own on his home turf. Maybe I don't know. Down on the ground, the angels discuss whether or not they ought to help Psylocke. Before they can, however, an Apothean psychopath rushes at them. Uh, just when we start thinking there might be some action, Cable just shoots him in the head. There you go. When questioned by X-23 as to why he did this, Cable asserts that this fellow was quote already dead. So I guess this is just another way to justify sidestepping that pesky little kill-no-man edict, huh? Unless, of course, the fallen angels, just like the rest of the X-teams, are, quote, officially exempt from following that law. Anyway, back to Psylocke, because we gotta. Apoth is trying to cut a deal. He wants his, quote, mother to sit at his side and whatnot. Psylocke blocks him out and manifests a psionic shield. Apoth blasts at her, but she deflects it. Then, Apoth decides to change form. First, he changes to Quanon's teacher, who we've seen throughout flashbacks. Then to Quanon's lover, who I don't know if we saw during flashbacks, but he announces himself as the lover, so there you go. And then finally, to Quanon's child. From here, we jump back to the ground, and we get some very awkwardly drawn scene of uh, the angels rescuing some children. At least, I think that's what they're doing. 
it's not even like it matters. I, you know, I don't even know why we bothered adding Husk and Bling last issue, because none of these characters matter here. It's It could have been any, any number of different characters. Back to Psylocke. Now, Apoth, in the form of Quanon's daughter, begs her mother not to kill her, but eh, she runs her psychic blade through her anyway, and that's it. Like, really? We spent the last hundred-plus pages building to this confrontation, and just like that, it's over. This is a big bad who was built up as a god, and it's over. Quanon is then visited by that bald-headed entity from a couple issues back, and we learn that this is like the adversary of Apoth, or the opposite, so I guess like the good half of, like if one, it's, this is like Jacob and that other guy from Lost or something, I don't know. Quanon asks why the bad guy, the bald guy didn't stop Apoth, and oh but he did, because you see, he sent Quanon to do it for herself. We go back to Krakoa. Psylocke and X-23 share a moment. Quanon frees Laura from her fallen angel's commitments. She says that Laura's a leader, despite not really showing that during this mission, or anywhere in the series, unless there was like a whole bunch of managerial mastery happening off-panel, which we didn't see. Couldn't say. Now, Psylocke hopes that she can call Laura a friend, and they embrace. Then we follow Psylocke to Bar Sinister, where she hands over the mechanical doohickey that apparently Apoth still somehow dwells in. Now, she suggests Sinister destroy it, but he says, hey, how about we pretend I did instead? They agree to work together again in the future, so long as it's a mutually beneficial endeavor, which, I mean, let, let's hope they don't. Uh, we wrap up the issue and the series with Psylocke watching the sunset, or maybe the sunrise, I don't know what time it is. Uh, whatever the case, she now knows that she can do some good in this world. We close out this miniseries with a poem that I am not going to read. Next episode, we're going back to the farm, so I know at least one person out there is going to be happy about that. But, uh, yeah, how about we wrap this uh, We wrap this issue up here? We wrap this uh, Fallen Angel series up with some thoughts. It's done. I, I could just go to the end theme right now, but no, no, we'll, we'll talk about it some more. I feel like a great big purple butterfly-shaped weight has been lifted off our collective shoulders. And I don't think I've been this happy to be done with a comic since I was reviewing, like, new DC comics. And I agreed to cover the 12-issue Raven Daughter of Darkness maxi-series that came out, oh lord, uh, 2018-2019, I believe. And, uh, it was awful. <laughs> it was really, really bad. And you know, it's actually not too different from this Fallen Angels mini. They were both written by well-regarded writers. That Raven was by uh, Marv Wolfman. You know, and this is Brian Hill. They both had laughably forced depth. Like, really, really forced depth. And in Raven, we couldn't go a page or two without being reminded that Raven is the daughter of Trigon the Tar Terrible. So it's like, we kept getting this repetition in both series, and uh, we bloated something that didn't need, to, didn't need near as many pages into something that uh, just barely fit with all the repetition. So let's talk about this Final chapter, this issue I mean, no matter what happened here It was going to be a letdown, right? So much repetitive build in those first five issues I mean, what could have happened here That wouldn't have been eye-rollingly disappointing? Quanon confronts Apoth And runs it through with her psychic blade We really needed 120-plus pages for that? 
this this is a story that didn't need six issues to be told, and I'm not convinced it needed six pages. I mean, you cut out the repetition, the purple prose, the unnecessary info pages, and the pointless recruitment of Husk and Bling, and you might have, what, a four-page backup in a Dawn of X-flavored X-Force or Excalibur annual? I mean, I'd only suggest Excalibur because, uh, did you know Betsy Braddock once inhabited Quinnon's body? That's a piece of obscure trivia for you. You might want to write it down. Let's, let's talk about some good. Let's talk about good bits of Fallen Angels. I like the idea that this Apoth character kind of focused on Cable as being this man and machine in perfect harmony. It plays a bit into the concept of the post-human, which I believe, as it was described in Hoxpox, was the leap from human over mutant to their next, and for lack of a better term, evolution. Now, this might be the first time we see an actual mutant as a link in that evolutionary chain, and uh, I'll admit, that's kind of intriguing. Unless, of course, I'm reading way too much into it, which is absolutely possible, because I am looking for anything here. I do like the way Mr. Sinister was handled uh, here in this series. Uh, this wasn't silly, sassy Sinister, but the you know creepy, sort of means-to-an-end, obsessive collector and researcher type. You know, this is this is the Sinister I remember, and it was nice seeing him here, even if he was you know stuck sharing scenes with a scenery-eating Psylocke. Uh, the art mostly worked, outside of whatever the hell was going on during that scene where X-23 was maybe rescuing children. Uh, the characters there look like oddly placed color forms, which, not a good look. So those were things I liked. <laughs> I, I, to go into things I didn't would be, just like Fallen Angels itself, largely repetitive. But let's do it anyway. Um, Quanan is not a character who can carry a miniseries, or God forbid, an ongoing. She's on, Not only is she not interesting in the slightest, she's aggressively unpleasant. Her sole character trait is that someone marginally more interesting than her once inhabited her body. That, and the fact that she digs butterflies, do not a story make. Uh, X-23, I think she was handled decently here, but in a pretty forced sort of way. Her character sort of needed to be, like, complementary to Quinnon's, which is all well and good, but I feel like she quickly became pigeonholed into the role of, like, just giving a slightly different point of view than our lead character while also delivering copious amounts of exposition when Quinnon couldn't be bothered. Cable, outside of his brief and baffling abduction, was a non-entity here. Uh, did, did we ever find out how he got away from the Hefty Bag Phantom? And, and while on the subject, let's, let's talk the design of a path here. Not great. Not great. <laughs> really, really, uh... It's, you know, we've talked about how this, um, this whole uh, arc, this whole miniseries feels like Something out of like a 1995 image book And the hefty bag phantom here Our, our big bad Apoth You could tell me that he first appeared in Dark Minds number 3 or something from an image And I'd believe it <laughs> You know It's very very dated design And uh, pretty uninspired uh, Husk and Bling Why did we even bothering, bother adding them to the team? They did nothing but stand around Unless, and it gives me a cold chill to even put this out into the universe, unless this miniseries was a sort of, like, pilot or a pitch for an ongoing featuring this ensemble cast? Eh. Or maybe we'll see some more from them when the Cable ongoing series starts up? I hope not. 
but uh, really and truly, I was hoping to not get a cable ongoing series to begin with. You know, I knew we'd eventually get a Wolverine, because of course we're going to get a Wolverine, but I was hoping they'd skip cable, but they didn't. Off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you who's writing Cable. It might be Brian Hill, for all I know. But uh, I just hope it's not a continuation of this. Uh, let's uh, let's cut away from the creative and talk about a little bit of the uh, behind-the-scenes here. Let's check out the sales for this series, according to the, the folks at Comicron, which is something I'm surprised I haven't done already to this point. So we're going to go through these six issues and talk about uh, how well they sold. Now, Fallen Angels number one sold 86,672 copies, which is pretty amazing. I would have, I would have lost money on that bet. I would have never, never imagined it got that close to 100,000 copies. Uh, Fallen Angels number two sold 46,859 copies, which is a fairly standard first to second issue attrition. Uh, it is worth noting, New Mutants number one was the top-selling book of November 2019, which is pretty weird. Uh, Fallen Angels number three sold 38,883 copies. Issue four sold 37,350 copies. The penultimate fifth issue sold 39,719 copies. And the issue we just discussed sold 39,912 copies. And uh, let me tell you, those are some unexpectedly decent numbers. And I, I guess that might say a lot for the strength of the Dawn of X brand. But the fact that all six issues were twice monthly probably didn't hurt. As I know, I had to have my DCBS pre-order for issues five and six in before number one even got delivered to my house. So I'm guessing that retailers were in the very same boat and uh, quality uh, or reader reception was a non-factor in this uh, in these orders. I have a sneaking suspicion that if this were just a monthly book for six issues, uh, sales on the latter three issues probably would have dipped to below 20,000. That seems to be the the way these things go. Overall, yeah, like I said, and I'll say again, Fallen Angels was definitely not for me. If you dug this, hey, more power to you. If not, well, at least we never have to cover another issue of it again. Knock on wood. So that's Fallen Angels. The issue, the series, all of it in the shell of a nut. But before we go, I do have a, a sort of extra-sized mailbag to attend to, so let's get right into that. We're going to start with Damien, and he's talking about X-Men number 5. He says, Following this book, along with X-Lapsed, really changes it because you become aware of where it sits with the other books. In retrospect, the continuity of this issue is a real mess. I'm reading along with you, so I haven't read Fallen Angels number 6 yet, but clearly, Laura just resets back to where she was before the series. And yeah, this is uh, something that uh, that we talked about during the X-Men number 5 issue here. Laura is just back to being, you know, a little Wolverine. And uh, by now, you know how Fallen Angels shook out. And uh, I'm going to reach here, but the only bit of credit I can give them is, uh, you know, at the end, Psylocke suggested that X-23 can be a leader. And in X-Men number 5, she's sort of the de facto leader of her little vault infiltration squad with uh, Darwin and Sink. Eh? <laughs> I honestly doubt that's anything more than a convenient coincidence Rather than a decision that was made going in That's just, you have characters like Sync, Darwin, and X-23 Who are they going to put in charge of that? Of course it's going to be Laura 
I am not sure why she's no longer worried about being in Wolverine's shadow. Unless at some point between Fallen Angels number one and X-Men number five, Marvel started putting designs on relaunching her all-new Wolverine series. And you know, the way they're bloating this Dawn of X line, it wouldn't surprise me. Heck, it would probably surprise me if they didn't try it at this point. There are a lot of books coming out of this series uh, going into 2021. Uh, back to Damien. He says, As you say, it was, a, it was a treat to see R.B. Silva and Marty Gracia back on the art. This issue looks amazing, but I have to admit that I have no idea what's going on. This feels like one of those stories where Hickman is leaning too hard into the sci-fi and losing clarity. And yeah, it's a great-looking issue. And yeah, in many ways it's baffling. Um, I meet, might be projecting here, but I feel like this is the sort of issue that people dig their heels in and say they loved because this is the kind of story many of us expect from Hickman. And as Hickman fans, we gotta, I don't know, like protect the brand, so to speak. But at the end of the day, like, what in the hell happened here? You know, it's kind of all over the place. And don't get me wrong, I'm not discounting anyone who did like this. But I, you know, I, I admittedly come from a bit of a hive mind myself. Uh, I'm a really big Grant Morrison fan, who likes story that, stories that feel like Grant Morrison stories, who, for a time, was quick to discount anyone who dared say they didn't like a Grant Morrison story as someone who just doesn't get Grant Morrison stories. Does that make any sense, or did I just say Grant Morrison a half dozen times for no reason? Uh, I'm taking the uh, scenic route here, simply to say, yeah, I wasn't too big a fan of this, but I can see why people were, and I can also completely understand why some of those people might discount my opinion entirely as, you know, just not getting it, you know? I think that's... I don't want to say that the creator has a cult of personality around him, but uh, a lot of writers do. A lot of writers do, and, uh... Is this a case of that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Damien continues. I'm excited for the next couple of issues. X-Men 6 and 7 are both fascinating issues that have a lot to dig into. And the next episode is Marauders number 6, which really ramps up that storyline. And I'm glad to hear that about the, the X-Men issues. I've been waiting a long time to be wowed by the, uh, the book I consider to be the flagship. Um, I, and I'm, I'm guessing many people, figure that X-Men will be the flagship of the X-Men line. Um, now, we've already looked at the Fantastic Marauders number 6, which I truly believe to be one of the strongest issues we've looked at yet. Um, it's right up there with the best of Hoxpox, you know, as being, you know, an issue that, uh, that, I would, that I would revisit, where so many of these are just like, okay, get it done, put it in the box, <laughs> get past it. Uh, file whatever is needed in the, in the back of the brain somewhere and move on. But uh, Marauders number six was really, really good. Damien wraps up with, As for the issue fives, my top place is still Marauders, followed by New Mutants. Next, it's X-Men primarily for the art. Then X-Force and Excalibur with Fallen Angels at the bottom. It's not a smooth curve, though, as the top three are quite considerably ahead of the bottom three. And at the bottom, Excalibur is way ahead of Fallen Angels. I genuinely wonder how it got published. I imagine there's some sort of story behind the scenes about this. You usually only get something this bad when editorial and the creative team are working against each other and the book is getting rewritten. And yeah, I mean, we just wrapped up Fallen Angels a couple minutes ago and it is still baffling, isn't it? I think that, you know, if Fallen Angels was published by DC Comics, I feel like this would be a six-issue miniseries that got put, quote, on hiatus after the second it really just doesn't fit the rest of the line 
it's not anywhere near the level of quality that we'd come to expect. And I mean, some of these books are very middling, but Fallen Angels stands below even that. You know, we've had some bad issues of X-Force. We've had some bad issues of Excalibur, but Fallen Angels has been consistently bafflingly bad. <laughs> but uh, that's that's a Damien's le- uh, letter here. Thank you so much for writing in. Now, uh, we're going to get to Al Sedano, who wrapped up Hoxpox here, and one of the other letters also did as well that we'll get to in a little bit. Al, talking about Powers of X number six, he says, Well, here we are at the end of Hoxpox. I'm going to miss doing my reading from this hardcover. I think you're right. Marvel should make this one of their evergreen trades, at least as long as this version of the X-Men is being published. And I truly believe it will be one of those books that Marvel continues to push hard. Uh, I I would say even after this era passes, kind of like, you know, like E is for Extinction, the first uh, Grant Morrison new X-Men run. uh, That's that's close to being evergreen. You know, that's something that I see getting reprinted every now and again, and people still talk about it and, and hold it in high regard. So I think... I think uh, House of X, Powers of X will be something similar to that. Uh, Al continues, Okay, let's get into it. So, the mutants are screwed. Humans hate them for being their replacements, and the post-humans hate them because they worry that the mutants are going to try and stop them from replacing the mutants. Damned either way. And yeah, we're being dropped into some perilous waters at the end of Hoxpox. That that much is for sure. Which, uh, I mean, looking at it that way... when I was in the same spot as Al, having just read Hoxpox, had not touched, uh, you know, Dawn of X, a lot of people were warning me about how uh, promises aren't delivered on, you know. Um, and a lot of the folks I spoke with were kind of disappointed or at least underwhelmed with how the Dawn of X books may have failed to grab that baton and run with it. So, I mean, we have this really good setup. We're, we're dropped... We're dropped in a minefield, right, where there's just so many possibilities and uh, so many promises and expectations. And, I mean, we get books like Fallen Angels. <laughs> we get books where we're fighting in, in Camelot. We, you know, we get uh, cliffhanger deaths every issue, which seemingly, you know, to me, misses the point of this entire era. It's a... I'll, I'm going to be interested in hearing some of your your Dawn of X thoughts when you uh, when you start reading the uh, your anthology trades. I'm looking forward to hearing hearing your feelings on that, and also listening to the program and seeing uh, seeing how close we are on uh, on these thoughts. Uh, back to Al, uh, the Mora journal pages. I'm trying to figure out when they take place too, with the mentions of losing Magneto and Apocalypse showing up. Could it be late '80s our time? Mags did become evil again after Inferno, and Apocalypse did show up a few years before that. And yeah, this is a bit where I admittedly kind of lost the plot in my analysis. Um, I've been, I don't want to say taken to task, but I've had people raise this point to me um, a few times. Uh, and I, I haven't re-listened to it, but I do remember how I was feeling when I was reading these uh, journal pages. And I feel like that's definitely where I kind of... My analysis kind of went askew. Um, I was taking these pages here, and I mean, there's only like three or four pages, I think. I was taking them as being like an exhaustive look at X history. And that's very much likely fueled by my own paranoia that we were about to have like our entire continuity wiped away or inconvenient bits of the continuity wiped away. I viewed these pages as being like the complete history. So I discounted a lot of the obvious, obvious hints and allusions, right? 
because I wanted, you know, I wanted the, uh, the whole, you know, explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old sort of a situation there. And, uh, that's not what we got, but I, uh, that's kind of the prism I viewed it through. Right. Now, Magneto turned bad again. Uh, that, that, that's being discussed here. That's probably from the first three issues of X-Men volume two. So probably 1991. Um, and this is when Mora was revealed as having altered him during his time as a baby, after he was reverted to baby form in that Bronze Age Defender story. That's something we just recently discussed, or not recently, but in the latest episode of uh, From Claremont to Claremont, we talk all about that, uh, me and Jody uh, Yarden. Uh, Al continues, They don't want precogs on Krakoa, so then Franklin Richards is out. Will this be explained in the Fantastic Four X-Men mini? And I am very much looking forward to finding out. When I started this little project, people were really hyped about, um, you know, getting the X of Tens, right? Where I've been most intrigued by this X-Men plus Fantastic Four story, even from, like, the opening pages of House of X number one, where the Fantastic Four, uh, you know, they caught Sabretooth, and then we had that really tense scene with uh, Reed and Cyclops, and uh, a really weird and passive-aggressive, almost, discussion. I was... That just totally captured my imagination, and I, I couldn't wait to see how that played out here. I love the idea of the mutants kind of like staking their claim on Franklin. And it's uh, it's actually been something I've been looking forward to for like much of my ex-fandom, ever since I found out that Franklin was a mutant. That's, you know, that seemed like a no-brainer to me. You know, but then, you know, back in the day, I was also waiting for like Namor and the Scarlet Witch to join up. But, uh, well, I guess one out of two ain't bad. Now, since I haven't heard a whole lot about that mini since it's come out... I'm embracing for it to be like an underwhelming sort of non-happening. But I still have my fingers crossed. And uh, we will be kicking that four-part series off in two episodes' time. Two episodes from now, and then we're going to run it all the way to the uh, <clears throat> milestone 50th episode of x Lab. So 47, 48, 49, and 50 will be X-Men plus Fantastic Four. Uh, back to Al. He says, I want to know what Apocalypse is thinking while everyone else is having a huge party. And they are doing a moderately good job of, with Apocalypse and Excalibur. Um, now, for several of these opening issues, he's he's like the lone high point. So it's uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing how everything Apocalypse kind of plays out. He's been, he's been handled very, very well. Uh, Al goes back and he says... Uh, while I do like the X to the Third Power stuff more than you, it's kind of confusing. I promise the Legion is not normally like this, and I'm very happy to hear that. Because these uh, <coughs> these X-Men Year 1000 bits were... Yeah, they were out there. Al continues, I understand your concern about them killing Mora to change things again. But since she only had one life left, maybe, I think they're going to hold that from when Hickman leaves and Marvel decides that they're done with this. And yeah, I'm guessing that uh, Killing Mora is like their back door to whatever, you know, will be coming next. Uh, but I'm hopeful that maybe there's a back door to the back door. I want to say that there was a hint that her mutant ability will only work until she's dead ten times. So perhaps, like, the inevitable death of Mora the tenth won't actually set any dominoes in motion, right? Maybe she'll just pass and her mutant power won't kick in and that'll just be the end of her and we can move on from there. If I were to guess, or bet, I'd say Marvel probably doesn't know exactly where this is going to go just yet. Um, we're still in, like, Dawn of X bloat phase, so we're just trying to cram as many new books into the line as possible. 
when they inevitably start to drop off, then maybe we'll have a better idea of uh, of whether or not there's going to be any sort of momentum in reverting things, changing things, or just you know starting a whole new whole new era. Maybe we'll get like another twelve part mini maxi series, and who knows. Uh, Al continues, or Al, Al concludes with, Overall, I enjoyed these two minis. They have me interested in reading the Dawn of X books and seeing where we go from here. There are a lot of interesting ways they can go with this whole mutant society background. I'm just curious how well they'll fulfill the promise. And yeah, like I alluded to earlier, fulfilling the promise seems to be where most X fans I speak to are you know, disappointed with Dawn of X. Uh, but by now, if you're, if you're still listening along and you've gotten to episode 45... Uh, you probably have a better idea of that, so <laughs> there's that. Uh, but thank you for writing in. I'm so happy that you uh, you stuck through for the opening uh, the opening maxi series or the the two mini series that are one. And uh, definitely, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on uh, on the big launch. So uh, if you uh, if you stick around, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts. So thank you. Uh, next, we got two short pieces here. One from Chris Bailey, uh, my partner on More Tory Mondays and uh, plenty of other things, and this is talking about Dawn of X number fives. Not not you know not any particular issue of fives, but I did ask people to tell me what their lists were, you know. And he says I'm listening to X Lapsed X Men number five, and I just finished Fallen Angels number five. I have to say my least favorite of all the books is Excalibur. I just can't dig it, and that's saying something after listening to Fallen Angels. And yeah, you know, as much guff as I give Fallen Angels, I swear that I enjoy talking about it more than I do Excalibur. I mean, Fallen Angels is kind—it's of, like so up its own ass that it's kind of fun pointing out how precious it is. I don't want to say it's so bad it's good because it certainly isn't, but it definitely, actually, you know, it gives me material to work with. You know, the biggest sin of Excalibur is more in the fact that it's boring. I struggle to find anything good or bad to say about it because it's like I finish reading an issue of it and I just go, all right, well, that's something I read. You know, and that's as far as my, my train of thought goes, which I guess that might explain why why you guys get such biting analysis from me during an Excalibur discussion as it was nice seeing Rogue and Gambit together because there's really nothing else to say. It's just... Aggressively dull <laughs> But thank you for writing in, buddy uh, We're going to wrap up with a piece from Evan Bevins And he, like Al, just finished up Hoxpox So this is Power of X number 6 He says Wrapping up episode 12 And I haven't del- delved into the Dawn of X stuff yet But a couple of things I was thinking With the timing of Mora's journal Maybe because of where I was when I read this and I was listening to From Claremont to Claremont, but I thought the part where they lost Magneto was when Mora's manipulation was revealed in X-Men Volume 2, Number 2. And her faking her death, I thought that was when she, die, quote, died of the legacy virus, but I could be totally wrong. And no, no, I think you're, I think you're 100% right. Um, as mentioned, and probably will be mentioned again, my analysis kind of lost the plot during those journal pages. Um... I was way too concerned with what we might be losing that I never once considered that we were actually instead adding to existing lore. I was just, I was like, had my claws, you know, gripping these past stories. I just didn't want them to go away and didn't realize that uh, they were just lifting it up and putting something underneath it to prop it up a little bit, you know. Uh, Evan uh, wraps up with, and although it may not be clear, I think all the X-Men stories we know happened in the most recent life, even though clearly some events happened in the other lives as well. 
And yeah, there's definitely some overlap in the lives. And uh, after reading the first arcs of all these Dawn of X books, I'm much more comfortable with the idea that everything we know is happening since X-Men number one, way back in 63. Uh, that actually occurred in Mora's, you know, current and re- most recent and current life. So I'm definitely feeling a lot more uh, assured in that um, I don't want to say fact, because who knows, but uh, I'm pretty sure that everything that we've read from X-Men number one uh, till now is is all part of Mora's tenth life. So that's a, that's a good thing, if you ask me. And uh, thank you so much for uh, following along and, and also sharing your thoughts there, Evan. Uh, now, if anybody else would like to uh, chime in and uh, let me know your thoughts uh, anywhere from, uh, you know, Hox, Pox number, Hox number one to... I guess Fallen Angels number six. Uh, please feel free to write in. Uh, you can reach me at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, you can find show notes and stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find the Facebook page at 90s X Men, and uh, the audio archives is at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I'm hoping that uh, my little uh, major X Lapse stunt didn't scare too many people away. Uh, <laughs> that was one thing that I put together and uh, quickly found out that absolutely nobody wanted it. So uh, we'll see if we go back to that well. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But uh, till then, or actually till next time when we discuss uh, New Mutants number 6, Back on the Farm, I will just say one huge thank you to everyone for hanging out and sharing your time with me. And uh, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. going everybody this is chris welcome to episode 46 of x lapsed where uh i'm coming to you uh well kind of soaked um i i probably smell like a uh not so much a brewery but maybe like a a mexican brewery um i've been uh, pushing myself a little harder than usual in the uh, workout department here and uh i'm suffering a very very sore shoulder and uh 
I am married into a uh, Mexican family, and uh, so before I go to actually go to an actual, you know, doctor, um, there's this thing called mezcal, which is uh, alcohol fermented from agave, I believe, that uh, is said to have uh, healing properties if you rub it on uh, sore muscles. So, yeah, so that's what I did, and uh, that stuff is warm. It's really, really, like, it's, like, hot to the touch. It's very, very strange, and uh, couldn't resist, so I did take a single sip of it to see what it was, and I swear it was, like, liquefied acid reflux. <laughs> it was some of the most heinous stuff I've ever put into my mouth before, so... Uh, and, and worst of all, it really didn't do anything to... Uh, to my, you know, faculties. It didn't make me feel... It didn't take the edge off, is what I'm trying to say. But, uh, yeah, so I have this stuff soaking into my right bicep and shoulder at the moment. We'll see. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll keep you guys up to date on how this works out for me. But uh, with all that out of the way, let's get into today's book here. We are discussing New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 6. Now, this had a March 2020 cover date. And the story... Now, the story title might have been better for uh, issue four because it's called Not As Hoped. And uh, I remember when we started this uh, little trip to the farm. Yeah, that wasn't what I hoped for. So we'll see if it still uh, if it still fits for this sixth issue. Written by Ed Brisson with art by Flaviano. Colors, Carlos Lopez. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X, Hickman. Edits, Biso White Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale January 29th, 2020. Now, let's open with our roll call to remind us, uh, you know, which New Mutants arc we'll be talking uh, talking about today. Uh, we've got Armor, Boom Boom, Glob, Maxime, Manon, Beak, and Angel. Then our double page spread of creds. And in we go. Drunken Boom Boom has just arrived at the farm, and picking up from where we left off a couple issues back, has just blown up one of the cartel's trucks. She then aloofly turns to Armor and asks, you know, what, what's the haps? Before she can get an answer, however, the cartellis fire a power-dampening rocket in her direction. Armor tackles Boom Boom out of the line of fire just in the nick of time, but it seems like, seems like that power-dampening rocket was still, you know, in range. On the ground, Hisako tries to fill Tabitha in on just as much as she can. You know, the cartel, the power-dampening, Beak, his family, and the rest of the team being held hostage in the basement. And also, there were how there were some shots fired inside the house when we closed out last chapter. Speaking of inside the house, let's go head into that basement and catch up with our hostage friends here. Now, our man Glob Herman is freaking out that Maxime and Manon had those uh, two cartellis kill each other rather than... You know, maybe just manipulating their minds and convincing the bad guys to, you know, maybe just let them go. Maxime and Manon don't really see what the difference is since it got the job done either way. Glob clarifies by explaining how the rest of the cartellis heard those shots get fired and will very likely be interested in seeing just what went down. No sooner does he say this than one of the baddies pops his head into the basement to, you know, check things out. Glob disarms him and chokes him out. From here, Beak heads upstairs to check on his folks. As soon as he reaches the top of the stairs, however, he is brutally shot in the chest. I mean, there was a lot of blood in this scene. Outside, our boss bad guy, Tumalo, is directing traffic. He sends a couple of grunts out to fight Boom Boom and Armor, while he is going to head back inside the house to check on the rest of his men. 
Inside, the young mutants have made their way back to the ground level from the basement, and we see Angel hacking some of that strange puke onto one of the cartellis. Maxime and Manon are taking Glob's suggestion and causing another one of the bad guys to think that, you know, they're all friends. They even convince him to protect them. And so when Tumalo enters the living room, this blonde cartel member who Maxime and Mammon have been digging around in his head, he starts shooting at him, which is a good and a bad thing, as we're about to find out, because in order to evade the gunfire, Tumalo runs up the stairs. And we remember who's up there, right? That's, uh, you know, Beak's folks. Back outside, Boom Boom and Armor beat up a pair of cartellis, with Tabitha being especially no-nonsense. Then the rest of the mutants rush out of the house, Glob's carrying Beak's limp body. Armor asks Boom Boom how she got here, hopeful that maybe there's a Blackbird jet stashed away somewhere nearby. But here's the thing, she didn't fly. In fact, she took a Marvel Universe approximation of an Uber or Lyft to get there from the uh, Krakoan portal. Now this pretty much means they're out of luck as far as getting Beak to a uh, local medical facility anytime soon. That is, unless they take the other cartel rig, you know, the one that wasn't blown up. And so they load on in. Before they can pull away, however, another shot rings out. Boom Boom, Armor, and Glob rush back toward the house, instructing Angel to drive to the hospital and not look back. At the house, Tumalo kicks the door off the hinges and he's holding his gun to Beak's father's head. That gunshot from a moment ago was where Tumalo killed Beak's mom. Tumalo tells them nobody better leave the farm in his truck or else he's going to blow this old man's brains out. So then Angel rushes the porch and points out how this is, you know, a lose-lose situation. If they stay, Beak's going to die. If they go, Mr. Bohusk dies. So someone's going to die either way. Angel starts crying, stating that they came to the farm so they could be left alone. She then tells Tumalo that his cartel, they win. You know, she and her family will leave Nebraska and they'll move to Krakoa. They'll never have to see him again. She also informs him that uh, he's not leaving this farm alive. So there's that. Unfortunately, this doesn't really seem to bother old Tumalo. It's almost as though he wasn't expecting to leave in the first place. He explains that he's part of the Bohem Cartel and that there will be more of his ilk to trouble the mutants going forward. He then pulls the trigger and blows Mr. Bohusk's, Bohusk's brains out. He continues explaining that they'll never be free from the cartel, especially if all those members sent to the farm today wind up dead. He then presses his pistol into his own dome and pulls the trigger. Okay, so he's gone. They're both gone. We jump here to an info page talking about the Bohem cartel. Now, they're based out of Bohem Costa Perdida and have a net worth of $15 billion dollars. We get a hierarchy of names here, which will mean very little to us at, the, at this point, but for completionist's sake, let's read them out anyway. The head of the Bohem Cartel is Ezekiel El Rey Dengra. He's got two lieutenants. They're Miguel El Rojo Martinez and Julian El Amarillo Perez. Now, El Rojo has, a, has three officers, and they include, and I'm going to you know, try to say these names as best as possible, Oscar El Pupura Romero, Alexis El Naraja Gutierrez, Juan El Verde Montes, and then El Amarillo, this is much more difficult than I thought, it's a lot easier just to write them. El Amarillo's officers include Orlando El Sarcofagio Espiga, Rodrigo El Muerte Ruiz, and poor dead Tumalo, whose real name is unknown, so... It's quite a colorful group, isn't it? Pun partially intended. Uh, it's said here that there are 40,000 members of the Bohem Cartel, you know, just creeping around the world. So these guys might pose a threat. 
Jumping back to comics, Angel rushes back to the pickup truck and drives Beak toward a local medical facility. The rest of our mutants are just left standing among the wreckage. This news is quickly picked up and reported on by our new favorite news source, Docs. D-O-X. The headline reads, Nebraska Nightmare, Four Dead in Mutant-Infested County. Which sounds about as biased and baity as uh, most real-world news. It's worth noting that this little article reminded me that Beak and Angel were part of that weird makeshift post-House of M, post-Civil War team of new, mut- new warriors, actually, which was mostly comprised of depowered young mutants wearing costumes that granted them different powers. Which was a really cool idea, but kind of executed poorly. Uh, also worth noting, the DOX or Docs article cites a correspondent going by the screen name Sapien Superior 24-7, which uh, might tell us a thing or two about Docs's sources. It doesn't help that SS 24-7's only, is only sharing information that paints the mutants as attacking the farm rather than being the victims of a cartel hit. Now we get back to comics and we jump back to Krakoa and the Healing Gardens, where Beak is recovering from his injuries. He's happy to see Armor and he thanks her for saving him. He also comments how happy he is that nobody else was hurt, which, you know, baffles our POV character just a little bit. Glob goes to bring up Beak's parents, to which Beak is a bit confused. You know, since they both died peacefully in their sleep many years ago. Ruh-roh. Before Glob can correct him, Armor pulls him outside. It looks like they're going to have to confront and confer with a pair of creepy little gray-skinned black-eyed children, and so they do. Quickly, Maxime and Manon cop to the accusation that they did alter Beast and his family's memories in order to make them think that they were just victims of an attempted break-in and that the Bohusk elders were long dead. Armor goes to flip out, and she tells them that, you know, they can't be doing this kind of stuff. The kids, you know, they figure, okay, well, we'll just, uh, we'll give them their memories back, you know? She, they offer to give the Bohusk's memories right back to them, but Armor kind of throws her hands in the air and gives up. She says, you know, what's done is done, and decides they'll just let Beak and his family go on believing that this was actually a far better day than it actually was. And that is where we leave it. Now, next episode, we uh, begin our countdown to the landmark 50th episode of X-Lapsed, and that'll begin with X-Men plus Fantastic Four number one. But before we get there, let's, let's talk about what we just read. Well, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I actually like this quite a lot. After, you know, not having all that much use for the first two parts of the story, I actually, like, really appreciated how it how it all wrapped up. Um, maybe it's just the fact that it felt like an actual wrap-up, which is something we're just not getting from the other Dawn of X stories that are closing out their arcs. Um, I mean, did Excalibur wrap anything up? Sorta? Maybe? Kinda? Did Fallen Angels? Pfft, no. Uh, this three-issue bit actually feels like its own episode, you know? And as disinterested as I was in it, I'm happy about that. I really think they didn't do themselves any favors intermingling the two very different, in every way possible, opening arcs for this title. Had they dropped this farm story in after we wrapped up the Shi'ar arc, I probably wouldn't have had anywhere near the knee-jerk reaction to it as I did. So what do we got here? Now, we're introduced to the concept that this cartel is a whole lot bigger than just a few trucks full of goons, with the promise that they'll be revisited at some point down the line. We also get Maxine and Manon being wildly creepy and uh, sort of following their own moral compasses. See, they're trying to do right, but maybe not quite understanding the responsibility that comes with their powers. 
I'm looking forward to seeing this, you know, explored further as we continue learning more about them. At the end of this issue, Glob and Armor wonder what Xavier might think of how the twins, well, I think they're twins, used their powers to make the Bohusk brood forget about their troubles. I mean, you gotta assume that Xavier probably already knows, so I wonder if this will ever come back up. Uh, Boom Boom's drunkenness was mentioned, but downplayed from the last issue. I'm not even sure we saw her with a bottle in this issue, whereas she was never without one last time out. Uh, the murders of the Bohusk elders were pretty brutal, as was Tumalo taking his own life. Um, if we stop and think about it here, you know, I'm going to go back to the old chestnut here of talking about the stakes, right? This really ups the stakes here in that, I mean, we have a higher-ranking cartel officer who is willing to take himself off the board for the benefit of his group. So the mutants have an enemy that values their own lives even less than the X-Men do. I mean, the X-Men, the mutants can be resurrected, so their lives don't quite mean as much. Cartelis cannot, so yeah, I'd say that this makes this group a scary and formidable group of foes for, uh, for the X-Men. Seeing Beak get shot in the chest was a shock at first. Um, I assumed he was just going to die and be resurrected. Then again, since he wasn't living on Krakoa, I wonder how recent a backup of his is currently in Cerebro. And that is, of course, assuming that there's any backup of him at all, since he never checked in. I'm glad he was able to survive, though, and that these mutants still value things like life and modern medicine, rather than just taking the easier way out, letting him die, only to pop out of an egg a handful of pages later. So it kind of zigged where I was expecting it to zag, and I was happier for that. Uh, I'm also really digging the idea of this Doc's website news magazine thing. I'm looking forward to seeing more from them. I know I've seen the logo, the DOX logo, on the cover of a later issue of New Mutants, so I'm assuming that they'll be looming in this title for at least a little while. Uh, having Docs as a wildly biased piece of business, uh, gotta almost assume it's a commentary on the current state of the mainstream media in the United States, though I could be wrong. I was happy to be reminded of that weird New Warriors volume that featured the post-decimation depowered mutants for a couple of reasons. Um, first, I'd kind of forgotten it was a thing. <laughs> you know, despite when it came out, I counted it as an X-Book since, you know, it had Beak, it had Angel, it had Jubilee, it had Chamber. It had, you know, so many young mutants that I that I enjoy, or former mutants at the time. So uh, I counted it as an X-Book. And here I am, all these years later, almost forgetting that it happened to begin with. And also, another reason I liked it is that it told me that another little bit of X-Men history actually happened. Not that I'm too scared of having things removed from continuity at this point, but it's always nice to get a little reassurance, right? Overall, this issue ended the farm-slash-cartel arc probably the best way it could. It felt like we got an ending here, and in a minute way, it altered the status quo. You know, we started this arc with Krakoa, and now we've got Krakoa plus the Bohusks. So, <laughs> we did change something. Net positive, uh, not, not bad at all. Um, uh, those The first two issues of this... Not great. This one, maybe not the best thing in the world, but a lot better. And I wonder, I really think they did themselves a disservice by intermingling it with the Shi'ar arc that is in many ways more interesting to me. And, uh, and I mean, that the Rod Reese art there is just, it's, it's almost incomparable. So this feels lesser than, unfortunately. And I, I think this would have benefited by being its own thing or an arc following the Shi'ar arc. But... 
it is what it is, and it's uh, it's over. So uh, next time we'll be going back to the Shi'ar space here, but that'll be that'll probably be you know, a little ways down the line since we are doing X Men Fantastic Four, and uh, we're going to be getting some giant size stuff coming in. So we'll just play it by ear, and we'll we'll get there when we get there. But uh, rest assured, it is coming. Now, before I let you guys go, let's uh, do a little bit of digging in the mailbag here. We have a letter from Damien talking about Marauders number six. He says, I'll start with the feedback on my feedback. And this is uh, referring to a mention of, uh, I believe, Jason wrote in to discuss um, Excalibur dealing with the Queen. And, uh, and Damien had taken issue with that in his uh, prior feedback. And he says... Uh, I'll start with the feedback on my feedback and state that my position on the Queen of Inexcalibur was less a problem with the story and more an automatic allergic reaction that I can't control. I live in London. It's my home. It's not a fantasy place. I can't help but flinch when I see that nonsense on the page, no matter how well it fits the story. And I can totally appreciate that. And I can also, in a very small way, sort of relate to that. I mean, I don't know how obvious it is, but I, I grew up in New York, New York City, and... Um, I hear a lot of tall tales and anecdotes about the place from folks who've never been there. And uh, there's definitely a stereotype for a New Yorker, and I suppose in some ways I fit it. Uh, That said, some folks out here in the Phoenix area automatically assume that I'm going to be rude and nasty just hearing my voice. And I, I, I may very well be rude and or nasty at times, but I assure you that it likely has nothing to do with where I come from. But uh, I can totally understand. Uh, your point is well taken. That uh, I think we, I, I think things are like distilled down to their very basic elements when we think about places around the world and places that we're that all we know are from pop culture, right? Um, I think a lot of people see London, people see you know Tokyo, people see New York, and uh, though they've never been there. They distill it down to its uh, most basic pop culture references, and uh, like if I'm picturing, if I'm picturing, you know, the UK or something, it's like I'm seeing the you know the stereotypical you know Bobby and uh, the red, you know, the red phone booths. <laughs> That's it. Um, but then again, I've never been there. I don't know enough about it to to really say anything more eloquent about it. Um, a lot of folks in New York just see, you know, hot dog stands and and rude people spitting on the sidewalk. And sure, while there are some of those out there, it's not all of it. It's not, it's, I'd, I'd wager it's, you know, probably not even a huge part of it. But uh, no, I totally understand uh, where you're coming from there. Um, Damien continues, I want to thank Al for questioning my reaction to Storm as cult leader as it made me go and reread the Greg Pak Storm series, which I loved. On a reread, it does seem like Storm rejecting godhood is more in my head than on the page, so Al might be right. Not that I'm ever wrong. <laughs> and I guess that settles it. <laughs> uh, I've never read the Greg Pak Storm. I think I have the first handful of issues um, of it. And I think that came at a time where there was just a glut of a... Uh, of solo X-Men books coming out and I, I just, I couldn't do it. There was just too damn many. And uh, Storm, if I'm remembering right, she was coming across as a very, very unpleasant character in all the books she was in, that I, I suppose other than the, the solo. But I, I think it was, uh, 
was it Chris Yost, I think, was writing one of the X-Books at the time, and his Storm just totally turned me off the character. She was just awful. And uh, I didn't want any more of her, so I didn't read the Greg Pak stuff. Like I said, I think I still have a few of them, because I, I am an idiot, and I still buy everything, but I don't think I've ever read it. Uh, Damien continues. On to Marauders number six. I love this story. The best thing continues to be the fact that it's a great single issue, but it builds on the previous issues and builds to the next. Of all the X-Books, it feels the most like the X-Men of my youth, where every issue stood alone. Every character feels true. From Kitty to the most minor villains, they all feel right, and they don't. And when they don't, there's an in-story reason. I don't want to spoil anything, but I can confidently state that this book gets even better over the next six issues. You talk a lot about evergreen stories, and I can really see Marauders being added to the list of classic X-Books in years to come. And I hope you're right about that. I really do hope you're right about that. Uh, I feel like these days in comics, um, especially DC Comics, uh, we're getting these sort of like boutique runs. You know, they come with the nicer covers, and and it's uh, it's like an, a more obscure character usually. And... They're usually written by Tom King because, for whatever reason, folks like reading monthly comics that could be summed up by saying, this month, the title character tilted his head to the left. And that's it. Um, That said, I could see Marauders being in contention as being a standout boutique run. Only, unlike the King books, one actually worth owning and reading. But uh, I I could definitely see that. I think Marauders um, is a very dark horse run uh, uh, in uh, in the Dawn of X you know, list of books here. It was one I wasn't going to buy. It was one that I I just didn't think it was going to be necessary. And when I saw it on the stand, it's like my completionist nature got me. And of course, you know, X-Men volume five, number one came with that wonderful checklist in the back, which means Chris has to get all of them. So, uh, I was going to leave it behind, and uh, and then I bought it, and I, I read it, and I expected not to care for it one bit, and turned out being just about the best there is out there right now. So I, I think uh, I think this is going to have lasting power, for sure. And and the fact that it really, it's so tonally different than uh, than everything happening on Krakoa, it, it, it can sort of stand on its own. You know, of course, you'd have to know, you'd have to be familiar with the status quo, but it, it I think it can shoulder being read on its own. So that that's a cool thing, too. Uh, Damien continues, I love it so much. It's not so much the actual content as the style. I wish everyone would pace comics like this. I literally believe that this series gives the blueprint of how to save monthly superhero comics. I hope people notice. It's got the Tumblr ability that you sometimes decry whilst having enough content to actually satisfy readers. Or to satisfy actual readers. And the use of X-Men history is integrated naturally. And, yeah, there's a lot of love and a lot to love in Marauders. Um, and in many ways that, you know, we've already discussed, it's a book after my own heart. I really hope people are noticing and following as well. And uh, this inspired me to head over to our friends at Comicron to uh, check out the sales figures. Because uh, I hadn't done that yet, and I... It's been so long since I've actually looked at sales figures that uh, I don't know what's good and bad anymore. You know, um, back when I was doing more contemporary DC stuff, um, it it seemed like there was an unwritten rule that you couldn't get below a certain point without being canceled. And then they kept lowering that point. (laughs) And they kept lowering that point and they kept lowering that point. 
to where uh, when I was looking at young animal books, there were some that were selling in the four digits. I mean, under 10,000 copies, which is unreal <laughs> to me. But uh, but no, I'm, I'm enjoying actually taking a look at these sales figures and familiarizing myself with what the industry and what the market actually looks like again, because I'd, I'd taken quite a break from doing so. So while we're talking about Marauders here, let's see how many people are following along. Now, the first issue in its first month sold 86,830 copies, which really good numbers, just like Fallen Angels, which we discussed last episode. Marauders number two sold 51,241 copies, so not that bad a drop. Usually, we can expect like a 50% attrition from issue one to issue two, which we did see with Fallen Angels, and here it's not quite that bad. Um, Marauders number three only dropped less than 2,000 copies to 49,309. Marauders number four dropped a little bit more to 45,641 copies. And then five dropped to 44,802 copies and six sold 44,212 copies. So from one to six, and these are all first month sales because there are some residual sales that you'll see in subsequent months, but we're not going to worry about those here because those just muddy the numbers a bit. Um, if we look at just these strictly first month order numbers, uh, Marauders has held on to 51% of its readership. That's not bad. That's not bad because usually between one and two, they only hold on to 51%. But here we have one through six and there's still over half the people who, you know, who curiously bought the first issue stuck around to, uh, to see, uh, the, what would naturally or usually be the end of its first arc given a Marvel, uh, the Marvel method, but that's not bad. And still, as of the sixth issue, is in the top 30 of comics sold, which isn't bad. Especially when you look at the top 10 and top 20 and see that it's full of gimmick books and tie-ins. And books being renumbered and books being relaunched. And yeah, I think that's not bad. Uh, you know, a, I don't want to call it a second or third tier X-book because it's head and shoulders above them in quality. But... When you think of X-Books, Marauders, as a casual fan, Marauders is probably not the book that jumps to mind. So to have that selling as decently as it is, that's not a bad thing at all. And yes, uh, there there certainly is a bit of Tumblr ability in this series. And uh, when, I, when I covered issue six, I almost mentioned Iceman making a big deal about being a judge on Drag Race as a bit pandery. But... And I'm I'm not going to say I have a ton of gay friends, because to say so would be pandery, and it would be untrue. But the few that I do have, they all really enjoy Drag Race. So uh, I guess I can't say it's pandery if it's, you know, true, at least in out of through my prism, right? <laughs> Damien wraps up with, can you tell I like it? And uh, yes, I can. And uh, hopefully folks can tell that I also like it. So thank you so much for writing in and sharing your thoughts, Damien. Thanks for being a good sport about the feedback to your feedback. Um, if anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, it's easy to do so. You could do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You could also find the show notes and stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, uh, xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's a Facebook group that, uh, I don't even know if it's still a thing, but it's 90s X-Men. There's that. Um, and the audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I was uh, getting ready to make a fairly, I guess, 
not 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 too large an announcement since this is just me, but a, a decent sized announcement uh, with the fiftieth episode about some uh, some directions, but uh, decided maybe not, maybe not yet. So uh, we're gonna hold off on that for now. But uh, after this episode, we are going to be moving into uh, the X Men Fantastic Four miniseries, which will get us all the way to the. Landmark, milestone, double-sized, foil-embossed 50th episode of X-Lab. So I hope folks are digging it. hope folks stick around for that. Uh, but I guess that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. Just uh, one big thank you to everyone for hanging out and sharing your time with me. It really, really means a lot. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 54 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I come to you slump-shouldered, humbled, and very annoyed at myself. Uh, Now, if you listen to the uh, previous episode, uh, episode 53, I said that today we'd be discussing X-Force number 7. And that's because the uh, reading order list that I used in the back of the Dawn of X books did not include... X-Force number 6, and uh, that was all books that were cover dated March of 2020, and then uh, I didn't see X-Force number 6, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't give it a second thought. So then I jumped to the April 2020 cover dated books, and X-Force number 7 was one of the first. And so I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, I spent several hours making a list and putting together album art for about 25 episodes, which... Oh man, that was tedious and annoying, and I was happy to have it out of the way. And then I uh, I went to my short box of Dawn of X books and pulled out the next issue of X-Force and saw Beast on the cover of it, and I was like, wait a minute, I don't remember manipulating a cover with Beast on it. 
because I spend, you know, a good 5-10 minutes with each cover as I'm, you know, manipulating it into the album art. And uh, I was like, I, I would have remembered Beast. And no, no, I didn't. I didn't do it. So, so we're a number off for uh, ever <laughs> going forward. So I'm going to have to spend another couple of hours uh, fixing my goof up. And, uh, I mean, you guys ain't gonna have to worry about it It's, uh, you guys wouldn't even notice it if I didn't mention it today, probably But I figure in the, uh, interest of transparency and, uh, I don't know Just a, a human mistake, I guess A human moment, I think they might call it I haven't, I haven't had very many of those, so No, no, I'm kidding But, uh, yeah, today we're gonna be doing X-Force number six the next episode, we're going to do number seven. So we're going to do two X-Forces in a row, and then we'll just keep going here, and I will uh, I will set aside another couple hours to fix the album art for the next 20 or so episodes. But uh, I was so annoyed with myself when I saw this, and I didn't want to go downstairs and confirm my suspicion that I did it wrong. But, uh, yeah, first thing this morning I saw it and was just like, oh, man. Anyway, let's get into it here. This is X-Force Volume 6, Number 6. Had a March 2020 cover date. We're going back in time. Stories called Intelligence, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Steven Segovia. Colors are by Guru EFX. Letters, VCs Joe Caramagna. The head of X is Steel Hickman. Edits, Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99, and went on sale January 29th, 2020. We open with our roll call. And we've got Beast, Wolverine, Domino, Kid Omega, who's already back, Marvel Girl, Sage, Black Tom Cassidy, and Professor X. From here, double page spread of creds, then we open our story. And we open in a place called Terra Verde, where X-Force are just one click away from their next target. Now our strike force consists of Wolverine, Quentin, Domino, and Jean Grey. Sage is in the background doing a tracking thing like she does, and Beast is the one giving the orders from Krakoan Command. He tells them, or Sage tells them, not to leave behind any witnesses here, because, of course, X-Force doesn't have to acknowledge that pesky kill-no-man rule, you know, just like seemingly every other X-Team right now. Now, from here, we hop directly into our forced dialogue du jour. Now, Beast compares what he's doing to conducting an orchestra, and we get to see visuals of each of our team members using their instruments. And uh, that, that's not a euphemism. Uh, during this, Hank compares them to the kind of music they would be, which is a little cringy. But for those interested, uh, Quentin Choir would be a shrill, brilliant violin. Domino would be a fun, emotive sax. Sage harmonizes in the background. Why even bother with her? Come on. Wolverine mindlessly beats drums and crashes cymbals. And Jean's a cello. There you go. Anywho, as we watch Hank watch, uh, X-Force is slicing and dicing some alien-looking creatures, and we'll find out more about them in just a little bit. From here, though, we go to an info page, and it's uh, the quick and dirty on Terra Verde. Well, I suppose it would be the quick and dirty if it didn't take up an entire page, but it actually gives us some very interesting information, so we're going to allow it, and we're actually going to dive deep into this page because this is some cool stuff. Now, we learn that Terra Verde was advancing the science of telefloronics, which, uh, I mean, we've all heard 
of like the nebulous use of nanotechnology in comics, right? Now this is sort of like that, only biological and organic. Uh, now this telefluoronic dealy has similar healing effects as the Krakoan magic meds. But here's the thing, it could also be weaponized, which I think is going to be the angle we're going to be exploring here. And I tell you what, there's a lot of meat on that bone, so let's do this. Now, the gist of what gets us to our next scene is that Terra Verde had initially refused to sign the Krakoan Treaty. Then they even like threatened to sue the mutants for plagiarism, considering that their, uh, their nana, nanofluorites or whatever do very similar things. But at this point, they've changed their minds, and they will sign on. Now, we hop back to yesterday. Our opening scene was now. Now we're jumping back in time to get us there. Now, yesterday, the, tr- the signing of that treaty was to take place. And we see Xavier on stage with uh, Terra Verde's president, Manuel Cocom. Now, Xavier has Tom Cassidy at his, uh, at his side, while the Prez has his son, Hadwin Cocom, helping him make peace with this decision. The press conference begins, but then a trio of reporters shapeshift into Martian Manhunters? Well, like a plant-like Martian Manhunter, I guess. Uh, you ever see it when, like, John Jones shapeshifts into, like, the creepier-looking version of himself? Like, not the, not like the round-headed one, but, like, the pointy one. He's got, like, scaly, sort of. He's sort of scaly and pointy. Now, that's what these reporters have transformed into. Black Tom throws himself in front of Charles to prevent a reoccurrence of what happened back in issue one. Now, the bad guys, Muerte Verde, they basically just threaten President Cocom and leave. Now, we follow Black Tom back to Krakoa, where he fills Beast and Sage in on his report. And they're both a bit incredulous that this encounter didn't end with any injury or fatality. Tom suggests that he proved to be too scary for him, which uh, is kind of adorable, I guess. Sage decides to get a better look at the replay, and is immediately able to deduce that the Martian Manhunters weren't actually going after Xavier or the President, but instead had their designs on the Sun Hadwin. And it looks like they got him, even though I don't think we actually saw that bit happen. Now, later on, at the presidential estate, Hank McCoy pulls a little B&E. He peeks into the presidential suite and sees Manuel being attended to by a doctor. Now, the doctor, he's like, you've had a busy day, you should rest. And so, when he, the doc, goes to leave the room, Beast punches him in the face. That, (laughs) I guess that's one way to do it. Uh, The president justifiably freaks the F out and rushes to an open window to make a leap for it. Unfortunately for him, however, Jean Grey just happens to be floating outside that window. Manuel begs them to leave, knowing that the Muertes will kill his son if they find out that they're talking. Jean decides to, you know, cut through the, the nonsense here and just read this fella's mind to figure out exactly what's going on here. Now, she learns, and then we learn, that the Muerte Verdes were a group of telefluoronic scientists. Now, this goes back to what we learned on the info page, which, as I mentioned, is very interesting. These scientists infected themselves with the nanofluorites or whatever, and it's changed them. You know, clearly it's changed them. Uh, Gene compares this to the development of an atomic-level weapon. B suggests that they strike the muertes tonight, and instructs Gene to do a mind-sweep of the presidential home to make sure nobody, except the president himself, remembers that they're there, they were there. Beast wants old Manuel to realize that he'll always be in debt to the mutants for solving this problem. To which I say, how about we don't get ahead of ourselves, Henry? Uh, There are shoes getting ready to drop here. 
Next, another info page. This is something out of Professor X's journal where he writes about his resurrection and how it was sort of a good thing he died in the first place as it showed that while he was off the table, the Krakoans were able to realize that their existence didn't so much depend on him, but on themselves. Fair enough. So now, we finally get back to those opening pages of the book here. So we're in the now. Beast is conducting his orchestra of violence as they mow their way through the Muertes Verdes. Uh, Beast thinks to himself that these Muertes are the, organi- are, are the organic equivalent to an Omega Sentinel, which, that's also very interesting. Now, he posits that they might wind up giving way to another version of what he calls an Omega Cycle, something that could potentially lead to the extinction of mutant kind. And I wonder if we're working under that sort of that post-human premise, like, you know, doomed futures and whatnot, um, which would make it a future that Mora hasn't yet encountered, if you know what I mean. We've seen the Nimrod future of X-squared and the post-human and phalanx future in X-cubed, but as far as I can remember, back in Hoxpox, we haven't seen, like, an organic norofluorite deal. Um, and I, I like this idea quite a bit. It's, it's very unexpected. You know, I wasn't expecting going to go into this issue and, and, and have this sort of a concept dropped on us. It's very good stuff. Now, Beast, he's cleaning his glasses, and he congratulates himself for always being five steps ahead which is kind of like literary shorthand for uh, about to screw the pooch. Now, as X-Force continues pushing their way through, Beast reminds Gene about that whole leave-no-witnesses edict. And uh, Gene has a little bit of a problem with this, as you might imagine. And uh, even though they're facing off against, you know, twisted abominations who want to wipe their kind off the planet, Gene still doesn't want to kill anybody. Now, Beast compares these muertes to Omega Sentinels, and he suggests that they're more plant than human at this point, and, you know, justification is a hell of a drug. And so, Jean pretends she's hovering over a planet full of asparagus-headed aliens and does the thing. Henry thanks her. He tells her she did the right thing, to which she tells him to more or less kiss her ass. Uh, she actually does curse, which... Eh, I don't know if I want to see Jean Grey curse, but that's just me. Now, X-Force reaches a pyramid in the middle of Terra Verde. On top of it is Hadwin Kakom, who reveals... Duh, he was in on it all along. And so he transforms into a Martian Manhunter and gets his butt kicked so fast they don't even bother to show it on panel. We resume back on Krakoa where Hank has Hadwin tied to a table with Krakoan coils. He deduces that the kidnapping was staged in order to buy the telefloronic scientists a little bit more time. Now, had this been successful, Terra Verde would have become a world power. Not only would they have a complete competing medicine on the market with the Krakoan magic meds, these nanofluorites would provide a bonus in the ability to uh, weaponize your body. And uh, you figure mutant sovereignty would probably go straight out the window at this point. Now, Beast reveals that he destroyed the Muerte's lab, and he also had every last one of them burned to ash. Hank was uh, up front with uh, his fellow Krakoans, and he's like, hey, I really want to interrogate this Hadwin guy. And the interrogation process consists of a bio-study of his body and then snapping his neck. Hadwin is returned to his father, but is in more or less a vegetative state, no pun intended. Hank continues to narrate this scene, confirming that President Kokom now feels resentful of his own scientists 
and indebted to the mutants, just like he planned. Krakoan uh, signs the Krakoan Treaty, just like Hank planned. The Terra Verdans get access to the magic meds, millions of lives are saved, and everything is right with the world. Now, as we close out the issue, we focus on Hadwin lying in his bed. When he begins to decompose, or melt, or something, he oozes into a putty and proceeds to continue to ooze out a window. Outside, we see that this putty has taken a humanoid form and is casually walking away. Five steps ahead, Henry, huh? Maybe not so much. Next time out, we will discuss X-Force number seven. I mean it this time. We'll actually do it. But first, let's talk about this pretty out-of-nowhere spectacular issue. Um, Hot damn, I really enjoyed it. (laughs) Going into this... With the beast waxing on about being a symphonic conductor, I was, I was literally shaking my head. I, I was reading it in bed, thinking to myself, how many times can I talk about how forced this writing is without that itself becoming forced, right? Like, I worry, like, are listeners going to think that I'm trying to make X-Forced a thing? Where I'm just going to nitpick this book a lot harder than I do the others just to keep up the gimmick? And uh, yeah, these are... Things that I actually worry about. Now then, we get into the actual meat of the story, and from of all places, a friggin' info page. <laughs> we get, like, rock-solid, honest-to-goodness, interesting information about the Telefloronics. I mean, this was so unexpected. Here we are, X-Force number six. We're getting actual progression in an issue that isn't oversized, isn't overpriced, isn't overhyped, isn't part of a 25-part crossover event. It's just a wonderful little treat for those of us who still buy these things week to week and month to month. It's almost enough to sort of kind of bring the magic of the single issue back for me. Um, I go into so many of these books. And if, you're, if you've been listening for all 53 issues, you know, first, thank you. And, and second, you know that it's hard to get excited about these all the time. So I go into so many of these feeling as though we're going to get just like a lame duck chapter of a lame duck story. So here we are. We get a done in one, with which actually brings with it ramifications and progression. And I'm sitting here dumbfounded. I almost don't know how to respond to it. I mean, like, like what year are we in? I, I don't even know. Are we still in current year? Is uh, This doesn't feel like... The, the amount of information we're getting here just doesn't feel like uh, that's the case. Now, I, I love the idea of the uh, nanofluorites. And I really appreciate that we're getting something new, yet familiar, for our team to contend with. Like I said during the synopsis, uh, Mora's futures don't show this. So it feels like, perhaps for the first time, we're actually like steering off the rails that Hoxpox put us on, right? Things might not necessarily be fated to be. I think we're, we were told that certain things are going to happen and... and Many of us were just sitting here waiting for those things to happen. We're, with this issue, it tells us that we're not just watching things play out the way they're supposed to. This is new, you know? And maybe maybe I'm over-romanticizing something that'll never come up again. But this issue left me with this like odd mixture of like dread and hope, which is pretty weird, right? I mean, I'm actually worried about what this new, potentially Omega-level threat to mutant kind might actually pose. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it play out. That is, of course, assuming that it does play out. 
uh, just really, really like this concept and uh, feels like a, like a cosmic curveball, which we don't get enough of. We really don't get enough of it. So what else? What else? Um, maybe it's just me, but I don't like seeing Jean Grey curse. And I promise I'm, I'm really not a prude. I try not to curse on the air, um, though if you talk to me casually, I'm from New York. It sort of just happens. Uh, cursing is part of my native tongue, I guess. So I'm not against cursing as a thing, but I don't know. It feels like Jean ought to be able to express herself without it. And yeah, this is a dumb sticking point, and it's not a hill worth dying on, but it did stand out to me as being a little bit much. I know they were probably trying to drive the point home that, you know, Jean was forced to do something she didn't want to do, but still, I don't know, I see her as being a little bit classier than that. Not that not that everyone who curses is unclassy, but, uh, I mean, I consider the source of that statement, but I don't know. Just don't see Jean doing it. Now let's talk about Beast. He's our point of view character here, and I think I've said it before here, he's one of my very favorite comics characters. Uh, you know, to to further, you know, to press that. Up up until uh, last week, I only owned two Funko Pops that were given to me by my wife. And uh, they were just of my favorite characters. Uh, one of them was the Hulk, who I love but unfortunately can't read anymore. And the other was Beast. And uh, Beast is my second favorite X-Man, right behind Cyclops, who, as it would just so happen, that my wife surprised me with a Cyclops pop a few days ago. It was one of the Marvel's 80th anniversary uh, figures with uh, the original 1963 costume. And the head on this Cyclops is gigantic, so it's very hard to keep him standing up. But uh, he is right behind me on the bookshelf, staring down at me. And uh, hopefully he'll he'll stay there. He won't fall down, because he has fallen down about three times already. So, all this to say, I love the Beast. Um, the Beast is... he's way, way up there. But I've hated the way he's been treated over the course of... I can't even remember the last time I liked Beast. Maybe Morrison's run. Um, it's been... He's been written very poorly. He's been treated bad. Um, and I feel like this issue might... And this is me, pie-in-the-sky Pollyanna here. Maybe it'll lead to something of a redemption arc for him. So long as they're not totally ham-fisted about it. I mean, Beast plotted this entire deal... It was precise, and as far as he knows, worked to a T. But we know better. We know that his five steps ahead actually put him like a step or two behind. Uh, when he learns this, assuming he does learn this, I think that might be an opportunity to re-examine and re-explore this character. Um, maybe make him a bit less of a pompous, semi-villainous prick. Maybe make him act a bit more like he used to. Uh, that is, of course, assuming a lot of things. Uh, first that this Muertes Verdes nanofluoride deal is ever revisited, and second, that Ben Percy doesn't turn Beast into, like, an emo ninth-grade creative writing student, <laughs> if this does happen. And I am thinking way too hard about this, and I'm I'm taking it five steps, uh, in, five steps ahead where we don't even have an inclination that there'll be a first. Uh, all this to say, I like having Beast as a point-of-view character, but... I wasn't too happy with the way he behaved. Um, I don't like how quick he was to break what's-his-face Hadwin's neck. Uh, that seems like one of those things that'll be hard to walk back. You know, uh, he he put a guy in a vegetative state to uh, to pull a fast one here. Of course, you know, 
he does sort of justify it in that, you know, the needs of the millions over the needs of the one. But uh, still, I, I, I don't know. It's a toughie to walk back. I feel like maybe one of my problems with this book, to, you know, in addition to the some somewhat ham-fisted writing style, is that the bloodthirst in this story is, in this series is a little bit much. I feel like Marvel and Percy have this idea that this is what an X Force comic is supposed to feel like. Um, I mean, and that's despite the fact that many other writers have been able to write X Force stories that weren't so brutally and prolifically violent. I mean. X-Force has been a thing for 30 years now And not every issue is like this It's actually only in recent years Where X-Force is like this Because they're the ones who are going to do things The X-Men won't do And uh, I don't know There's a logic to that But it's also one of those things where If you keep topping yourself in the violence department Then you're going to desensitize us to it You know, because I feel like I feel like it's it's funny because I I looked at the scene where Beast had Hadwin's neck broken by the Krakoan coils, right? Had that happened ten years ago, it would have been like a shock. It would have been like a oh wow, you know that they they mean business here. We see it this time, and it's just like well, it's just another page in an X Force comic. You know, it's a violent book. It's what we come to expect. It sucks that Beast did it, but it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't make me stop and take pause. It just makes me realize, like, wow, this is where comics are right now, and I I don't like that bit of it. Um, and that's not to say I didn't love this issue, because I, I really did. But I, I guess that's just more a commentary on just uh, the envelope pushing in comics, right? Or envelope pushing. I never know how I say that word. Now, let's talk art. Uh, the art here from uh, Steven Segovia, loved it. Thought it was awesome I think the designs for the Muertes are a little bit iffy But I definitely appreciated how much lighter this book looked under his pencils um, The colors were also a huge help in that regard as well uh, For the first time reading an X-Force book in the Dawn of X landscape here It didn't feel like we were watching a movie happening on a submarine with all the lights out Which, <laughs> I mean, it, it's a dark book usually, right? It's fitting for the tone that this book usually goes for But... It isn't always that much of a joy to read, right? It's a little bit of a chore to try to make things out. So, just like Excalibur number 7, which we talked about last episode, X-Force is allowed to sort of go off on its own and just have an adventure. Sure, there are ties to the Dawn of X landscape, but for the most part, it's given a bit of free reign just to exist on its own. And it's all the better for it. I will say I will be relieved when we get to stop visiting all the countries that chose not to sign the Krakoan Treaty. Uh, that wrinkle is starting to feel a little bit played out, but that's just a minor quibble. Because it did, after all, establish a setting and then facilitated an interesting concept coming to uh, the fore. Overall, X-Force number 6 was probably my favorite issue of X-Force from this volume, and I'm looking forward to more. Now, thankfully, since I goofed up the episode numbering, we won't have to wait long because, as mentioned, next episode we're hopping right into X-Force number 7. Fingers crossed it's just as good as this one, though it's uh, got Domino on the cover. Actually, Domino running away from Domino's, so maybe I shouldn't get my hopes up, but uh, hey, fingers crossed. We gotta be optimistic. And uh, that's pretty much everything I have to say about uh, this very unexpected 
good issue of X-Force. But before I let you go, let's dip into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien. And he's discussing giant size X-Men, Gene and Emma. He says, Being reminded of Nuff Said Month was a little painful. I didn't buy all the issues, but the ones I got, only New X-Men and Avengers were good. Or out of the ones I got, only New X-Men and Avengers were good. Fantastic Four was dull, and the rest were terrible. By far the worst was Uncanny X-Men, number 401, which I think would have been bad with dialogue and was bad and incomprehensible without it. And yeah, Nuff Said Month... um, Nuff Said Month was one of those things that I had on the short list of things that we wanted to discuss on Weird Comics History, because... I mean, it is a piece of weird comics history, and uh, it's one from a time that I don't think has become nostalgic yet, right? I think right now we're looking at, I mean, Bronze Age will always be cool. People are always going to be nostalgic for that. Uh, Whether you were there or not for it, it doesn't really matter. But I think right now, like uh, like the the 90s is what people are kind of nostalgic for. It's just kind of in the air, right? Um, people are waxing nostalgic about Wizard Magazine and stuff at this point. So, we're not quite to the turn of the century. And so, that was one of the reasons I was, I was really wanting to discuss Nuff Said Month on, uh, on Weird Comics History, because not everybody else is doing it. Actually, nobody's doing it, which is why we picked things to do. It's, uh, we don't want to be just another voice in, in the choir. We wanted to, you know, do stuff ourselves, you know. That's why we did... Like you decide month, yeah, that we did that, or you not you decide month, but the you decide stunt. Um, enough said was in that same list, and because uh, and it was painful, <laughs> as you mentioned here. Um, I don't remember the Avengers issue, but I do remember it happening during the never-ending war with Kang, which started out really strong to me, but then it just like never ended. I think it might still be going on. It was just so drawn out. Uh, New X-Men was good. It was good. Um, and just like we read with Giant Size, it was you know very similar in tone. I, I got all of them. I bought every single last one of them because I was a, a Marvel zombie at the time. and uh, Which meant I got a lot of terrible books. And uh, yeah, Uncanny is almost certainly at the bottom of that pile. Um... Ugh, that was during the X-Core thing with a Banshee uh, organizing a group. I think, like, the Blob was on it. Mimic might have been on it. And he was basically running them like like the SS. And th- that was what the costumes originally looked like. I- I'd have to dig around the internet, but I remember there were images going around. And uh, I think... I think this is when I discovered xfan.com. I think I don't know if that's even still a thing anymore, but uh, there was a website, I believe it was xfan.com, and uh, and I remember seeing the original the original images for Uncanny number four hundred one with Banshee in the uh, in the very controversial uniform, and of course I'm an idiot and it went over my head. I'm I'm very ignorant to things in real life, so it went over my head and I was like I, I don't get it until you know I found out why it was such a bad thing to have happen, and I was like, oof, that's a bad thing to have happen. But, uh, <laughs> that was awful. Oh, that was so bad. Uh, and I always tell myself I'm gonna, like, do a full reread of Uncanny. I know I'll likely never have the time to do that, but, uh, if I were to, 
this would be an era that I'm like morbidly curious to revisit. I feel like uh, I feel like this is like a dead zone for a lot of people um, between Casey and Austin. <laughs> you know, I, I think like there was a lot of stuff here that didn't age too well, and a lot of stuff was and sucked even back then. But uh, it's one of those one of those runs, a rare run, uh, especially given uh, what my fandom used to look like. Where I only read these things once, uh, because leading up to this, I'd read things. I read, I read stuff over and over and over again, and uh, like the entire, God, like the entire first hundred issues of X Men Volume Two, I, I must have read all of those issues two or three times, four times maybe, you know, especially the early ones. And X Force read all of them over and over again. Uncanny from you know the Gold Team up till. Up till, you know, after Claremont left over and over again. And uh, these issues, the Joe Casey and the Chuck Austin ones, I read them once and put them away. <laughs> so I'm actually very, very interested if I were ever able to find an extra couple hours to uh, to work my way through these things. And uh, I'm also working very hard to try and uh, I try to stick like a like a like a crowbar. You know, like a like a figurative crowbar in between my hobbies. Like I'd love to read them and not have to discuss them on the air. You know, I would love to just be able to read them for my own curiosity and enjoyment, where I don't repurpose them into something, into a product or a or into content. But that's something that I'm struggling with. So, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, back to Damien. He says, Morrison was wise to choose a dreamlike setting for that silent story, and that was blessed with Frank Quitely as the artist. This retread works well, but doesn't feel as urgent. Storm's injury comes out of nowhere. She gets hit with an energy blast back in the issue with the children of the vault, but there's no suggestion that she was injured between then and now. And yeah, totally. The injury was very strange, and when I first opened this issue up and just saw her lying there, discovered by those children, I thought she was dead. I just, like, oh, okay, Storm's dead. She's going to be put into an egg. She's going to come out of an egg now. I definitely didn't remember her getting hit by the children of the the vault. Um, I was probably too busy chewing on the scenery to to notice something that plainly happened on panel, which is something that I do. So, uh, yeah, this came out of completely out of left field for me. I didn't know when it happened, didn't know why it was happening, and didn't know what to expect moving forward. Uh, Damien continues I was also surprised to see how the infection is dealt with In later issues of Giant Size X-Men Storm states that she doesn't want to give in to illness But also that she doesn't want to kill herself and be reborn And yet it's never mentioned in Marauders In fact, I forgot she was meant to be ill Because of an extended gap between issues of Giant Size And her acting as normal in Marauders I'm sure the coordination could have been better It totally could have and it probably should have I agree, um it's because of stories like this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest that it's because of stories like this that there are all those contradictory reading order lists out there. Like you can't find two reading order lists for Dawn of X that that agree on much. I mean, if when I started doing this show, um, I had arranged the books in continu- you know, canon order, continuity reading order. You know, uh, what is sequential order? I suppose not. Not in one through sixes and whatever. This was just, I was taking it off the internet. You know, I had a list of, okay, this fits in here, this fits in there. And it was to the point where books that weren't even out yet or weren't delivered to my house yet, 
came up early in the continuity. Like, I think, like, the first six issues of Wolverine all happen in between other issues of other books, and I had only had the first three at that point. It's like, what? how, how am I going to do this? And uh, I probably would have been on a hiatus already had I uh, decided to go that route, because it's it's weird, you know? I guess, on the other hand, we would have gotten Fallen Angels out of the way in one go, but, uh, hey, you take the good, you take the bad, right? Uh, Damien continues You commented that some readers might feel conned by the price I don't know if I've mentioned it before But I buy all my comics digitally now I have far too many comics And I'm incapable of getting rid of them My husband is convinced that one night The pile of 40 odd short boxes in our corner of our bedroom Will collapse and will be crushed to death in our sleep In fact, the idea behind our podcast is that I'm trying to convince him that I love all my comics and that's why I have to keep them all. That's why it's called Should I Love This Comic. I love the art on this book so much that after buying it digitally, I had to go out and get a paper copy as well. Yes, I was mad enough to pay the equivalent of $10 for a quick read. I think I might have a problem. And uh, it's funny, my my wife and I are the the same way. My wife... I, I store my collection which at this point is around 100 long boxes, as well as a closet with several, like, five-foot-tall stacks of loose books in our upstairs guest bedroom. I, my, I suppose it's not really a guest bedroom, since there's no bed in there and no guest would ever want to sleep there. It's supposed to be our guest bedroom. Um, it's right above our garage, and she swears that it's going to come crashing down and destroy both of our cars. Um, well, if... if if things happen the way we're hoping, we're going to be moving house in a few months, and uh, I'll have a more dedicated and safer area to keep my clutter. And uh, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it before, but for whatever reason, I, I can't do digital. Um, I just don't enjoy comics that way. I wish I could, because I'm sure I'd get a lot out of services like Marvel Unlimited, uh, assuming that I'd actually have time to use it. Uh, that was a big problem for me when I was reviewing current year comics, uh, because Marvel and DC would send out digital comps to reviewers, which, I don't know, I just had such a hard time to get it, getting into, and uh, I would always skew, because I, I worked for sites that did the, you know, the, you know, the out of ten review score, you know, you scored the books, you graded it, and uh, I would always tick my score up a little higher because I was afraid that the medium, you know, the, or the delivery method, reading them digitally was affecting the way that I enjoyed them. So a story that I would have enjoyed had I been holding the book in my hands, maybe I enjoyed it a little bit less because I was reading it off a screen, if that makes any sense. I felt like I wasn't giving them a fair enough shake, I suppose. And, you know, funny, back in the long ago, well, not so long ago, I guess, I was a reviewer for uh, Dynamite Comics. Um, this was probably 2007 or so. And uh, they used to actually send me a box with the books physically a week before they hit the stores, which was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but unfortunately, Dynamite was like 95% licensed books, which I really didn't care. I mean, it's like, I, I don't need to read three three series of Battlestar Galactica. I, I just don't. <laughs> I really don't need that in my life. But uh, I did my job, you know. I got free stuff and I did a job, so that was that. Uh, Damien continues, Russell Dodderman and Matthew Wilson are an amazing art team. This is one of the best-run comics I've ever read. I'd not seen much of Russell's work, and I, as I haven't really followed Thor since the Falco Friends years, and I was, I was blown away. 
You could tell he was good from the Marauders covers, but this was really a revelation. And yes, this was this was wonderful looking book here. Um, and I hadn't ever seen him before either. Uh, I didn't realize he was on the Marauders covers until I was doing a little bit of research on him. And uh, I, I think, actually, I, I don't think it was even research. I think it was just when I was uh, going through the you know the double page spread of creds here. I noticed Dotterman's name there, and uh, it only stood out to me because we were doing this giant size issue. I was like, oh, well, he's doing this other stuff too. Um, but I hadn't seen him other than that. Uh, I I can't do Thor. Thor is so boring. And uh, I don't do Marvel events anymore, so I skipped War of the Realms, which is, I guess, uh, was like his big coming out party. You know, that's where people started to really take notice of just how, how awesome a talent uh, Dotterman is. Uh, uh, I was going to call you Russell. You're not Russell. <laughs> Damien continues. By the way, there was an element of madness, madness Paisley, but I was surprised you didn't note that the Paisley was made out of Storm's eyes repeated everywhere. I love the idea that Storm is watching. It was also great to see the callback to Storm and Jean cuddling during Inferno. Hickman also used the dialogue from that scene where Storm was announcing the resurrected Jean in Hoxpox. I like the idea of the head of X loving Inferno, as it's my favorite X-Men era. And that's true. They were Storm's eyes. I I didn't even notice it until uh, looking back at it. <clears throat> and I also didn't immediately get the call back to Inferno, but went back and found it. I love it when they do stuff like that. Um, and it's funny. It's, it's, it's weird, actually. When I came into this X-Labs project, I was, like, all full of P&V, you know, ready to rant about how nobody writing comics nowadays cares about what came before. And here we are, more often than not, as it pertains to the X-Men, anyway, I'm finding the exact opposite to be true, which, uh, I mean, talk about a pleasant surprise. That's, that's really awesome stuff that, that they are embracing what came before. And... Just like I said, I didn't notice it immediately. I just thought it was a nice scene. But you noticed it immediately, and you got even more out of it. And then I went back, and now I appreciate it even more. So you don't need... It's like, it's ingenious, right? I mean, you don't need to know it. But if you do, it adds so much more. I think that's the way... That's the best way to handle continuity. Because not everything should hinge on it. But it should be there. You know, um, because it just adds a whole different element of appreciation to a scene where, you know, otherwise it might not have been. Uh, now, uh, Damien wraps up. He says, overall, I was happy with this. I'm always prepared to have an issue here and there that exists more as an artist showcase than as an actual story. And I agree. I agree. Um, I, I was happy with this. Uh, I loved the fact that it was a callback to, you know, one of my favorite eras in, X in, in the X continuity. In the Morrison run, um, but I definitely will have to admit that it it goes down a bit easier for me knowing that I only paid like two fifty or three dollars for it. <laughs> uh, you know, five bucks wouldn't have been a breaking point for me because I am a completionist and uh, and so I'm you know I've evolved past those things or or the rest of the world has evolved past me I suppose. But uh, it does go down a bit easier knowing that I didn't pay cover price for it. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts here, Damien. I, I really, really appreciate it. And we're going to wrap up with a message from our friend Walt Neeland. Uh, he was uh, writing in to discuss episode 50. He said, I wanted to drop a quick note. I'm listening out of order to X-Lapse 50. Speaking for myself, I find that listening to you talk about whatever is great. The comic or topic at hand is just a vehicle for your authenticity. 
Shows like this, I often forget you're even intending to talk about a comic, and it's like, wait, what? No, no, more anecdotes. The comic will still be there later, however cheesy that sounds. And no, that doesn't sound cheesy at all, Walt. I very much appreciate hearing that, because uh, despite the fact that so much of my work... Uh, work. It's not work. It's me talking into a microphone. So much of this, so much of this hobby has been, um, has been, you know, fueled by personal anecdotes and, and whatnot. Um, despite the fact that so much of it has, I still worry every time I, every time I, I don't know, indulge in that sort of thing. Um, I worry that it's not, it's not what people signed up for when they press play. You know, if you see that, oh, this this guy's talking about X-Men Fantastic Four, and then you come in and it's me talking about absolutely anything else for a half hour, I, I just worry that people will be like, hey, what, what, who, you know, who's this idiot think he is? You know? <laughs> but, uh, but no, it means, uh, it means a whole lot to me. Uh, I mean, the reception to that episode has been... Um, it, it's been... Uh, it's been a surprise. It was very surprising. Uh, it's the first time I've sort of indulged in that sort of a uh, in that sort of content during this series, and uh, and I was worried because I, I told myself I wouldn't do that. I told myself that this was going to be a more material-based program for, uh, for as like a resource, you know, uh, for people to follow along. And if they missed something in Dawn of X, or if they just wanted to hear you know some guy's opinion about it before they decided to. To buy an anthology book or to buy a hardcover That's what it would be here for And of course I would give my thoughts And a little bit of my own history and point of view But never expected to Or I told myself I wouldn't indulge (laughs) In the personal anecdotes But I'm happy that that so far Everyone's really enjoyed it Or appreciated it at least Or was just cool with it Because uh, That was a a tough subject to discuss I've discussed Reggie a lot, uh, but in different sort of uh, framed differently, I should say, framed in, in different ways. So this was the first time I discussed uh, the the effect on this hobby, you know, which was something I, I wanted to share for a long time. I just didn't know how to go about doing it. And um, when I started this episode, it was just like, you know what, let's let's do it because. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to provide context as to why why I considered this a milestone because I'm I'm not you know I I've talked about milestones uh, various places on 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 the blog on other shows and a milestone is one of those when you when you're creating content for the internet a milestone can mean very different things um, I remember. I did Action Comics Weekly every single day for about a year. It was eleven, it was ten or eleven months. Every single day, I did a story from Action Comics Weekly. So I called it Action Comics Daily, and and I, I mean, Walt knows this. A lot of people know this, and it was a project that uh, was very very special to me because I'd never seen it done before, and it was an era that. It was one of those weird eras where I was uh, nostalgic for a time that I wasn't even a part of, you know? I was very, very motivated to learn all I could about this era and then share it with everybody listening, or reading, I suppose it was. And uh, 
you know, from I think it was February 1st of 2019 until um, November 30th of 2019. Every single day was a story from Action Comics Weekly, and I remember finishing the last one and uh, had this, like, such a... It was very bittersweet. Uh, I was so happy to have seen it through to the end, but it felt like I lost something at the same time. You know, I felt like I lost a friend (laughs) because I could no longer rely on Action Comics Weekly. But I remember hitting publish on that final piece, and... It was a milestone, you know, and I sat there at my kitchen island, hit publish, and nothing happened, you know. I, you're sitting there, you like you, I, you expect the dancing girls to come in and and uh, and confetti to fall from the ceiling, and no, <laughs> it doesn't happen. Um, so, like milestones, I've I've learned that milestones only really matter to the person making the content, and uh, so. I wanted to share why X-Lapsed episode 50 meant something to me and why it was a personal victory, an accomplishment that I wanted everyone to know why I felt that way. And uh, and I, I, I can't even put into words what, it, what, what the reception's been. It's been... It's been so nice. It's been so kind. Um, And it really means a lot to me. It really does. Uh, So, yes, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Walt, for for your message here. It it really put a smile on my face. I I very, very much appreciate it. Now, uh, if anybody else would like to put a smile on my face, uh, you can write to me at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and blog posts and that entire Action Comics Daily project over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can also go to xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com to find all the episodes of this program you're listening to right now in case you need to catch up or in case you missed something. Uh, Also, the Facebook group 90s X-Men and the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com where you can find a whole bunch of stuff for your listening pleasure or... Let's just hope it's listening pleasure. Uh, But I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Uh, I want to thank everyone so much for sharing your time with me. I very, very much appreciate it. And uh, until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and uh, I am dealing with some major allergies today. They're kind of kicking my butt, so if I sound a little raspy or a little hoarse, or uh, if I slip into some Peter Brady, uh, well, that's probably why. Uh, we're in that weird time where the weather's actually starting to change here in Arizona, where it's getting a little bit cooler. It's getting a lot cooler at night, and uh, never fails to wreak havoc with my uh, with my sinuses and my nasal passages. Uh, this morning I was doing my, my daily yoga and uh, Downward Dog was especially uncomfortable because it felt like my head was going to explode. But, uh, you know, just like the uh, the mailman, you know, got neither rail nor, rain nor sleet nor stuffy nose it will stop us from, uh, from meeting here to discuss another X-Men book. And, uh, well, today we got a doozy. We actually got a lot to talk about today with uh, this very special issue of, uh, of X-Men. So let's get right into it. This is episode 56, by the way. I don't know if I said that yet, but uh, there we are. This is episode 56. And the book we're discussing is X-Men, volume 5, number 6, which is uh, a, little bit of a, a little bit of kismet, right? 56, 5, 6, yeah, there you go. This one had an April 2020 cover date. The story's called The Oracle. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Matteo Bufagni. Colors by Sonny Go. Letters, VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa white Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. And this one went on sale February 12th of 2020. So we open this sucker up, and we are in flashback land. Distant flashback land. Or at least in real life. I don't know how... We'll talk about the sliding scale later. But we join Mystique and Destiny as they're watching a sunset. Though I suppose Mystique is... It's only Mystique actually watching it, but uh, suffice it to say, they're spending time together. Destiny is preparing to tell Raven something that she might find unbelievable, but something she promises will truly come to pass. Of course, Destiny is a precog. She could see the future, and uh, she's about to break off some knowledge for, uh, for our Mystique. But first, we flash forward to the present, and we're on board the Orcus Satellite. One of my very favorite places. No, not, not really, but uh, we'll do it anyway. Now, we learn that the Orcus Forge has been rebuilt, though it is without its mother mold. We also learn a little bit about the Orcus infrastructure, if you will. Uh, they've got defense units in Mercury's orbit, as well as a watchtower on Venus. Hopefully it's not the same watchtower that we're reading about over in Major X. Uh, there's also something called Sentinel City, where they mine and uh, will eventually construct a subterranean habitat. We next jump to later, where Director Devo is building and rebuilding and rebuilding a MacGuffin or something. <laughs> he talks about how, you know, you only get to perfection if you, if you redo things over and over and over again. Now, Omega Sentinel Karima What's-Her-Face is there with him, and she suggests that uh, the whatever it is he just built, it looks perfect. Then a courier appears at the door to take this doohickey to Dr. Gregor. Later still, that's exactly what happens. We see Dr. Gregor, who uh, I'm not sure we've actually seen her since the closing pages of X-Men number one, uh, but she's still busy toiling away at 
whatever it is she's been toiling away at. And we'll have a better idea before the end of the issue of just what that is. From what we can see here, however, it appears to be a pink chest plate. Hmm. Let's do a roll call. Director Devo, Omega Sentinel, Dr. Grega, Mystique, Charles Xavier, and Magneto. Then we get our credits. From here, we hop all the way back to Powers of X number one, which we discussed in long form in X-Lapsed episode two. Now, Mystique is with Charles and Magneto, handing over that bit of data that she, Sabretooth, and Toad had stolen from Damage Control way back in House of X number one. And, of course, that was X-Lapsed episode one. Now, the conversation begins the same way. Mystique tries to hold Xavier up to make some more demands, demands that we know a little bit more about having, you know, finished Hoxpox. She wants Destiny back, of course. Now, Xavier gives her the whole, you know, needs of the many, helping your fellow mutants spoo, before telling her that he has another mission for her. Of course, she will be part of the doomed Mother Mold team. That's something we already know. But we also get some new information here. Xavier has given her a Krakoan seed to plant while she's up there. You know, it's going to be a, a gateway seed so they can maybe come back, go back and forth as, uh, as they see fit. So, we jump ahead to the Mother Mold mission, where Nightcrawler has just bamfed Mystique into position. She shapeshifts to make herself appear to be an Orcus soldier, and goes ahead and plants that gateway flower in the satellite's uh, arboretum, or whatever it is. Seems like a, a lot of these ships have arboretum, so I guess that's uh, fortuitous. We then resume with the scene that we already saw play out pertain pertaining to Mystique on Mother Mold. She runs into Dr. Gregor and Omega Sentinel, who, if you recall, did the whole thing where they opened a convenient trap door right under the feet gimmick, which sent Raven out into the vacuum of space. Now, her final thoughts of what this mission is really all about, to her, of course, she agreed to help Xavier in exchange for one very important thing, and of course, that is bringing back Irene. Mystique dies, but we already knew that. We jump ahead again to the resurrections of the Mother Mold Strike Force from the big shoe drop issue, X4, I'm sorry, House of X number 5. We see that scene where, you know, Cyclops is resurrected and he asks Xavier if they were successful, and just like we read back in the long ago, the professor reveals that they were. We jump to even later still, and Mystique is once again summoned by Xavier and Magneto. You see... They said they were successful, right? But here's the thing. Xavier and Magneto are like 95% sure that Mystique did what they asked her to do. You know, plant that gateway seed and all that. But since this newly resurrected Mystique is from a Cerebro backup from before the Orcus raid, they can't be totally and completely sure. So they ask Mystique to try accessing the Krakoan gateway, if she actually planted it, of course. We learn here, or it's reinstated, I, I can't remember, honestly, that Krakoan gateway seeds grow in pairs, so tandem. So both sides need to be planted in order for a gateway to be functional. So, if she didn't plant the other seed, she'll simply pass through the portal as though she were Franklin Richards wearing one of his daddy's devices. So, Mystique shapeshifts into some Orcus gear, steps through, and boom, what do you know? It works. Turns out that Mystique was that courier from the uh, beginning of the issue here. And so, she picks up the doohickey from Dr. Devo and delivers it to Dr. Gregor. Now, Gregor is too busy toiling to even notice. Here, Mystique gets a better look at that pink chest plate and decides to bide her time a little bit. That night, we see her, Mystique that is, holding a blade while standing over a sleeping Gregor. 
She decides, however, not to kill her. We jump back to Krakoa, where Mystique is reporting this to Xavier and Magneto. She reveals that it doesn't look as though the Mother Mold mission actually stopped the creation of Nimrod. As a matter of fact, it might have just jump-started it. Mystique tells the fellas that whatever it is that Gregor is building, it sure looks Nimrod-y. Magneto asks why Mystique didn't just take care of Gregor right then and there. To which, she reminds him that, uh, hey, we got laws, don't we? Magneto's a bit incredulous here. He's kind of like, come on, you know, he, they know that these things are bunk. I mean, every, every group we talk about has, has allowances and can bend these laws as they need to. But I, I like that Mystique is kind of uh, hoisting them by their own patat, I guess. They, she's, she's, she's throwing it right back in their faces. Now, Xavier, he presses as to what Mystique might actually be, you know, angling for here. To which, duh, she wants Destiny back. This, this really shouldn't be a surprise to the world's greatest telepath, right? Uh, Magneto says that this wasn't the deal, which I could have sworn it was, but what do I know? Uh, Xavier tells Mystique that she's got a lot of work to do in order to gain that kind of trust. You see, she has a history of stabbing her own kind in the back, and she's not going to get her a big payout until they're sure it won't happen again. Magneto restates that they need Gregor dealt with. So Mystique, slump-shouldered and defeated, tells the fellas that she'll go back to the satellite the following day. She then tells Charles that she hates him. And uh, he doesn't seem all that surprised or bothered by this fact. He reminds her that everything they're doing, everything that they're working toward, is bigger than the both of them. We follow Mystique to a place called the Oracle, which I had to double-check an old map of Krakoa to make sure it was actually a place, and it is. As Raven descends down a spiral staircase, the discussion she had with Irene back in the flashback land plays out. Destiny tells her of a vision. A vision of an island. Not the first island, but the last island. And I'm guessing, I think Krakoa is like the third mutant island. We had Genosha, we had Utopia, and now we have got Krakoa. And uh, this vision will come to pass after Irene herself has passed on, so she will be dead at this point. Now, Mystique will be invited to this island, and she'll be made a promise, and a promise that'll be never be honored or paid off. Now, there's a reason for all this. The reason that this promise will never be honored is because they want to keep Mystique and many others in the dark, the people in charge, that is. Past Mystique does not really understand any of this. This is Mystique in the flashback. She's like, I don't get it. Destiny understands that Mystique doesn't understand, but suggests that when the time is right, she will. And when that time comes, Mystique is to, in no uncertain terms, bring Destiny back. Now, if she cannot, and if those in charge will not, Destiny instructs Mystique to burn the entire place to the ground. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, we'll be looking at more orders number eight. But how about we talk about this? Because hot damn, <laughs> if this is this was a hell of an issue. Um, it feels like it's been forever since we read an issue of Hawks or Pox, and then here we are, suddenly right back in the thick of it. Right, we're actually in between pages of that series, and uh, man, it's a uh, it feels so good, doesn't it? Now even. In writing my notes for this episode, I, I felt like I was right back in the first week of September when I was just trying to like get this little project off the ground here. I was terrified that I was getting things wrong. I was I, I had these feelings of like uncertainty and trepidation. I was worried that I was missing or misreporting key details from pretty much 
damn near every scene in the Hoxpox books. I thought I was just, I thought things were going over my head left and right, and I felt the same way here, and that's a good thing. Because it got me right back into that mode, and boy, I, I just had so much fun doing this one here. Let's talk a little bit about what we learned here. Okay, now, some things we already knew. We already knew that Mystique has been doing everything she's been doing up to this point for one reason, right? She wants to bring Destiny back. She wants her wife back. We also know that, per Mora, that under absolutely no circumstances is that to be allowed. We got those two things down. Up to this point, we know that Mystique has gone on the Mother Mold mission where she perished, and upon resurrection, she was installed as a chair on the Quiet Council. That's what we knew. Here, we find out quite a bit more. Mystique was given a secondary task while on the Mother Mold mission, planting that Krakoan gateway seed, which she did. I got a question, though. Mystique's a shapeshifter, right? She could, and in fact did, shapeshift into an Orcus soldier to do this mission, right? Why in the world would she revert back to Mystique? Was there a power dampener at play that I forgot about? And I say that only half-joking, because for all I know, that might have been a key plot point that I've just forgotten. Question. Is this a sign that the the Mother Mold mission was always supposed to end with the Strike Force perishing? Was this intended as a one-way trip from the get-go? Because, I mean, let's be honest here, self-preservation definitely doesn't seem like a priority here, does it? It really doesn't make much sense to me why Mystique wouldn't just stay shapeshifted. Or maybe I'm just thinking too hard. I tend to do that, especially when we're tying things back to Hoxpox. Now, Mystique's second trip to the Orcus Forge is pretty interesting, as it confirmed that the initial mission might have actually kicked off the series of events that will ultimately lead to one of the doomed futures. And as I began reading this, and I got my first glimpse of that pink chestplate, I got kind of weirded out. You know, things started to fall into place, and I, and I smirked a bit, right? Of course, it wasn't confirmed as being Nimrod until later on, but this certainly telegraphed that uh, that reveal and did so in the best possible way because it's just like, it, it really, I don't know, it was like a light switch turned on. It was like, uh-oh, <laughs> something's going down. Now, Mystique refusing to deal with Gregor in, until Destiny is brought back is uh, is very interesting. It's very much the classic, you know, rock and hard place sort of situation. Um, Xavier and Magneto, who... They come across as such massive pricks here. Uh, They need Mystique to get in there and do the dirty work that only someone with her abilities and training can do. And they've got this carrot to dangle, but from the looks of it, they never intend to allow Raven to get a bite of it. I think it's easy to assume that uh, the Professor and Magneto are underestimating Mystique here. They really seem to think that they've got her wrapped around their little fingers, and she'll continue to make sacrifices and be a good soldier for a promise that they never intend to make good on. But really, how long can that possibly last, right? Um, Or, I mean, we know that Mora doesn't want Destiny back, but we do have evidence that Eric and Charles have gone against Mora's wishes before. I mean, they've done so in the past. They brought Sinister in when Mora wasn't really keen on that. And uh, Mora suggested they, they they very well might do that again at some point, which is very interesting. It, it adds another layer to this story where maybe maybe it isn't such a self-fulfilling, easy for me to say, sort of thing here, sort of destiny, no pun intended, where they won't bring her back. We don't know that yet. 
So let's talk a little bit about Destiny. Let's talk about her instructions to Mystique that we closed off with. If she's unable to bring her back, or if those in control refuse to bring her back, Mystique is to burn the entire place to the ground, the entire island, which is a pretty frightening thought. And it's like the first time that we see some smoke to perhaps signal a revolutionary fire. I mean, just last episode, we talked about X-Force number 7, which uh, we talked a little bit about the collectivist nature of Krakoa, right? How the needs of the many are being weighed against those of the individual. It's made pretty clear here by Xavier's comments about what they're building being bigger than both of them, that there's some truth to that. It's getting harder and harder to view Xavier as anything less than a villain in all this, though. It's uh, very dismissive of the individual, which... uh, I'm wondering if that's an overtone we're supposed to be noticing. I, I, I almost assume it has to be. Um, but we'll, we'll get there, I guess, when we, when we get there, if we get there. So, here we are. We're seeing some dissonance, right? We got Colossus and Domino. They're, uh, they're having, like, a more passive dissonance. And now we have Mystique with a potentially incendiary, literally, sort of way, right? So we have these questions. Will she deal with Gregor? Will she kill Dr. Gregor before the Nimrod thing happens? Will she destroy the Nimrod prototype? Will she go to the satellite, just come back and say she did without doing it? It's a lot of meat on this bone, and uh, I really can't wait to see it play out. We get more questions. This is great. This is just like Hoxpox here, where you get to to ask yourself all these questions, and... uh, for better or for worse, you get to listen to me work my, uh, work my way through it and give you my hot takes. So, uh, questions. Are these futures inevitable? I had asked during our read-through of Hoxpox if there had ever been a moral life cycle where the X-Men were able to successfully take down the Mother Mold, the Orcus Mother Mold. I assumed that su- the successful mission drastically altered the trajectory of the doomed future. Here, here we're finding out that that, that wasn't the case at all. I mean, at least in theory, considering it looks as though Nimrod is going to happen one way or another. And then we have the Mora scene in Powers of X number 6, and I questioned, like, why she had to remain in hiding, right? Because, like, hey, we changed the future. Now, that's a little bit clearer. You know, it's not crystal clear or anything, but it makes a bit more sense as to why Mora would need to stay in hiding um, to, I don't know, prevent a future. Or just prevent people from knowing that there are strings being pulled behind the scenes. Um, Another question. What was that doohickey that Mystique couriered from Devo to Gregor? And does it even matter? Uh, Or was that just a clever MacGuffin to facilitate Mystique heading into Gregor's lab? Could be. Uh, Big question here. What else might Mystique know? Let's look at Destiny here. Destiny's been dead... A long friggin' time, right? She's been dead since Uncanny X-Men number 255. That was uh, 1988 or 1989. So, long time. 30 years in real life. Uh, I don't know how long it is in Marvel time, but for us, 30 years. Long time. And a lot of stuff has happened in the interim. So, if Destiny was already able to foresee Krakoa and the whole Dawn of X landscape being a thing, what else might she have seen? What else might she have told Mystique about? Is it in any way possible that Mystique already knows that Mora's there? Is she angling? I mean, this is this is very interesting stuff. 
it opens up a lot of potential uh, little story spurs that uh, I hope get explored. And I mean, let's reel back just a bit here, and we'll think about Destiny for a minute. There was a whole volume of X-Men, Extreme X-Men, dedicated to putting together a team to track down Destiny's diaries. They've since been destroyed, but I mean, they, they did exist. And if she wrote anything about the rise of Krakoa, there's a chance that other people also know. I mean, we didn't know up until this point that Destiny knew what was happening, right? So I guess the potential big question or the big takeaway here is who's playing who? Is is Mystique like just biting biting her you know biting her tongue here or you know chewing on the side of her mouth trying to play good soldier while she knows what's going on behind the scenes? Um, or is it you know just is it a, a matter of like what we see is what we get and she doesn't know? I don't know a lot of questions which is great. What that that's that's what I love about these uh, these very uh, these very dense sort of issues where we have. So many ideas, so many concepts just percolating and bubbling. It's awesome. Whatever the case, whether she knows or doesn't, whether she goes back or she doesn't, whether she burns the place down or does whatever, I loved this issue. So many questions, so many half-answers, and a whole lot to look forward to as we continue. Gotta say, the one-off, vignette nature of this X-Men volume has finally paid off for me. And uh, really, just such a wonderful book. Um... If you are not following the Dawn of X books, if, if you're, and, and for whatever reason you're still listening to this program, well, thank you. But if you had dropped the Dawn of X books, I'd say pick up X-Men number six because it fits in with the Hoxpox stuff. If you were reading Hoxpox but, but left during Docs, grab X-Men number six because it fits right in. It's, it's similar in tone. It's similar in just... Shoes dropping, you know Really, really awesome issue Thought it was fantastic Which Makes it even harder To do our uh, Dawn of X Wave 1 number 6 power rankings <laughs> Which is what we're up to next Really, really hard to rank And that's in a good way We've got like an embarrassment of riches Of good books We had three awesome issues Two very good issues and Fallen Angels, of course. Um, now, if I were going to rank these things, uh, you know, it's hard for me to put anything but this issue of X-Men in the number one spot. And, uh, and I mean, I'm looking at the, uh, the numbers right now, and I don't have X-Men in the number one spot, but after discussing it with you all right now, I almost got to move it. I got to move it. Top book of the, of the number sixes is X-Men. Second is Marauders. Third is X-Force, which was a really strong issue. Fourth was New Mutants, which closed out our story on the farm. Fifth is Excalibur, which sort of, kind of, ended our time in Otherworld for a little bit. And uh, holding up the uh, the anchor of the uh, Dawn of X line is uh, still, <laughs> and, and what is it, the winner and the reigning champion, <laughs> Fallen Angels, number six. So... X-Men, Marauders, X-Force, New Mutants, Excalibur, Fallen Angels. That's my power rankings for the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 6s. And I look forward to hearing your guys' thoughts on this uh, this very interesting and very uh, very strong run of books here. But uh, before we go, we do have one letter to touch on here. And this is from our friend Al Sedano, and he's talking about Excalibur number 1. 
He says, so, this was Excalibur number one. Okay. My first thought is, who in the hell is this trinary person, or trinary person? Are they new, or did they show up in the last few years? I really hope something about them is said in the next few issues, but just in case they don't, could you give me the skinny on them? Well, no, I can't. <laughs> uh, trinary, or trinary, was a brand new character to me as well, and I'd never seen her before. And oddly, if I'm remembering right, I don't think we've seen hide in her hair ever since this. Um, I think the last time when we did see her here, I did look her up, and I found out that she first appeared in one of the color books. I, I want to say red, since that's one I haven't read a single issue of just yet. So yeah, she's newish. Uh, what her story is, eh, I really couldn't say. Maybe we'll see her again. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> it feels weird that they'd introduce her and then just not use her for. Uh, I mean, we're going on to the fourth or fifth month of these Dawn of X books, and uh, yeah, we saw her once. Uh, Al continues. As for the rest of the issue, it was okay. Not horrible, but not great. It's definitely my least favorite out of the issues I've read so far. And yeah, I was pretty much, or very much actually, in the very same boat. It's just kind of there. Um, and it's like a weird dissonance for this issue, because... On one hand, it was really nice to be reacquainted with some familiar faces, right? I mentioned it then, it's like, hey, it's Rogue, it's Gambit, it's cool to see these characters again. It's been so long since I've seen them. But, I feel like there's too much attention paid to the Otherworld stuff for it to kind of actually stick the landing. Just wait until you get the Fallen Angels, though, my friend, because uh, that'll probably bump Excalibur up a notch or two in your power rankings for the first issues. Uh, Al continues, I'm hoping it improves. I like the general idea. With this new concept of a mutant society, it makes sense to have books focusing on different aspects. And since this is a world with magic, why not? And yeah, it does make sense. Uh, just like, in practice, and as it pertains to Otherworld and Camelot, to me, it's kind of dull. And if you continue uh, working your way through this series, you might find, like I did, that it overstays its welcome. It's, uh, it feels unending. <laughs> And even now, um, where we're where we're up to, I think issue seven or eight, we're not in Otherworld anymore. I think we had we spent like a page or two in Otherworld last issue, so we're not really in Otherworld, but it's still kind of there. And I'm always worried that we're going to get another world issue. It's yeah. <laughs> Hopefully they'll break away at some point. Probably after uh, ten X of tens. Now Al wraps up with. I guess I'll see where I rank this issue after I read the rest of the number ones. Oh, and mutants were first, as far as I can remember, called Witchbreed in Neil Gaiman's 1602. And I think that's definitely right. Uh, I want to say that a few people have, have reached out to remind me of that. Um, to be honest, I only read 1602 that the one time when it was coming out. And to uh, continue being honest, it bored me to absolute tears. Um, and I feel like... Had that book not had the words Neil or Gaiman on it, nobody would care. <laughs> I don't think it would be remembered quite as fondly these days. When Neil does a book, reviewers are very polite because it's Neil. Uh, but 1602, to me, was just so dull. And I expected so much because uh, it was a big deal to have Neil Gaiman there. And also, I am a giant mark for Miracle Man. And how 1602 was uh, part of that, you know, that Miracles and Marvels uh, deal that uh, Neil had gone with uh, with Casada and company. I was like doubly excited because 
everything that I bought was, in theory, helping to, you know, get the rights to Miracle Man back. And, of course, they got them back and did nothing with it. Um, well, they, they reproduced some things, but uh, we're still waiting on the uh, the Silver Age there, Neil. When are you, you going to do that? We've, we've only been waiting 30 years, so I know, I know that, that you have other things to do. But, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure Witchbreed uh, stems from... Uh, from 1602. I think that's that's got to be the case there. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Al. I'm so happy that you are continuing through with the Dawn of X books. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing some of your thoughts on the uh, the upcoming books. Because the first issues, uh, let's see, what do you have left? You've got New Mutants, which was a lot of fun. You've got X-Force, which had a crazy cliffhanger. And you've got Fallen Angels, which... Uh, yeah, you got Fallen Angels. And uh, <laughs> I really want to hear your thoughts on that. Now, if anybody else has thoughts they'd like to share with me about Fallen Angels or anything, in fact, you could do so very easily. You can reach me on Twitter at Ace Comics or by the, old, uh, the old-fashioned the old email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes, blog posts, and a whole bunch of stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could find the dedicated X-Lapsed page at xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. If you want to talk about X-Men comics, you can go to our Facebook group, 90s X-Men, and uh, you can find the entire Chris and Reggie archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, where there's many, many hours for your many, many, or I guess few ears. You only have two of them, and uh, I don't think there's very many people looking for stuff, so a few ears, a lot of hours. I figure it'll work. So that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Had a wonderful time talking about this very, very wonderful issue. I hope you all enjoyed hearing it, and if you are reading along, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I'd love to hear if you did or if you didn't. But uh, until next time, just a one more giant thank you for sharing your time with me this fine day, and uh, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya! See ya!